Hello and welcome to the Game Pit. This is episode 129. I'm Sean and here's Ronan. Hello, hello everyone. You're very much welcome back into the Game Pit. Sean, enough of this faffing around with these new formats. Let's get back to some good old-fashioned, boring, long-form reviews. <laughs> why Why not? Why not indeed? Yes, we are back to our good old picking over the bones format, Ronan. What are you bringing to the table today? Today, my, my carcasses for investigating <laughs> Blackout Hong Kong, Captains of the Gulf and Pandemic, The Fall of Rome. Very, very nice. So I... I was trying to make them sound intriguing. Did you like it? I, I, I was intrigued. Good. You knew, I hope. <laughs> so, Ronan, I'm going to bring Architects of the West Kingdom, Robin Hood and His Merry Men, and The Flow of History. I feel like we've gone a little bit children's presenter, but I think we should stick with this style for the rest of this show. And today we're going through the round window. What are we going to see there? Yeah, it'll be round by the time we get through it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Sean, before we do dive in... Any general thoughts you want to share with the world about these six games taken as a holistic something? Holistic something. Um, yeah. I think generally, Ronan, it's going to be quite a positive episode from me. I don't know, and we've just been discussing this, I don't know, actually, the vast majority of these, what your thoughts are going to be. So it's going to be a surprise to me what you're going to say. I like to keep you on your toes, and I have no idea what you think about most of them. Although I do like to read your face when we're playing them. Sometimes you're not you're you're no poker player. Yeah, after the time I'm playing at your house, it's after a twelve hour shift at work. So there's no there's no poker playing there. That's just brain dead. <laughs> Sunshine and roses. Uh, that's why we always play for money. So I'm going to give you a, a general thought for them. That there was a pattern amongst a lot of them that I really enjoyed. My first play or two but there was a recurring issue of replayability when getting above three or four plays with them, with, with a handful of them. I think that definitely rings a bell for some of them for me. Uh, some of them I'm still exploring, uh, but definitely there are a couple that I'm a bit worried about replayability, Ronan, so you may have hit that nail on the head. You do like me to hit a nail on the head, don't you? And as ever, we do our top three uh, in the outro at the end of the show of these six particular games. This was very hard to sort out uh, the one to three. And in fact, the one to five was difficult for me to arrange exactly. I, it, it took oh, a few bounces that means, around. That means there's an outlier. Thinks. There's definitely an outlier. There's definitely an outlier. Oh, I don't like that one. Yeah, we'll get to it. I, I, I think <laughs> I know which one it is. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, probably you do, because I did. Anyway, you've had hints. Uh, shall we just crack on with the reviews yeah. and stop boring people? Or start boring them, oh, well, either way. One or the other. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. And don't forget that we do have our YouTube channel. Go there for pit stop overview videos and convention coverage. So the first game we're going to review for you this time out is Blackout Hong Kong, designed by Alexander Fister for one to four players, around two hours playtime, coming from Egot Spieler, Pegasus Spieler, Cranio Creations. So there's been a blackout in Hong Kong. 
And the players are going to take on the roles competitively of people who are organising because the government's not really getting the whole job done. Obviously, it's a difficult situation. You're going to be gathering volunteers and specialists. You're going to be using them to collect resources in order to set up the infrastructure and secure various neighbourhoods within the city of Hong Kong itself. There's seven phases over the course of a round. The first of all, we're going to roll three dice. They're of different colours. They have to come up with different faces on them. And then you can lay the three dice out on this little grid wheel thing where there are six different types of resources. And basically, the coloured dice corresponds to that resource for the rest of this round. Then all the players are going to play cards to what starts off as three. You get access to a fourth one by completing the task columns at the bottom of their individual player board. And they're going to be face down when everyone's ready, you flip them over. And those cards are going to allow you to collect the resources. And you do that by placing your own colour cubes wherever the dice is of the particular volunteer you've chosen on that card. You can sometimes get money by handing certain things. You can get tokens like GPS tokens that's going to let you search the neighbourhood for resources. Or transport tokens that's going to allow you to collect different resources from those which are on the dice or to help you move around for stuff on the board. Once everyone has collected their, their cubes and laid them out on this circular grid thing, then we're all going to see if we're going to fulfill our objectives. Now, the objectives are going to want you to either have sets of colours of particular cards in your columns that you've laid out as your action cards to pay in resources or to pay in money. When you do complete an objective, there are two different types. You're either going to take that card into your hand and then it's going to be available to you to play, to collect more resources and do different actions on subsequent turns, or it becomes an objective card and that becomes a check mark action, meaning that at the end of the round, if there are four or fewer cards in your hand or six or fewer, if you upgrade again via doing an objective, you get to take up the longest column of cards that you've laid out over the course of rounds and also do all your check mark actions to give you extra chances to get things and to score points. You're also going to be able to scout into these neighbourhoods on the shared central board. Now, you have to have a presence to be able to scout. And the way you get a presence is every time you complete an objective, there are different coloured spots which are connected by lines to make a grid in the city on the central board. And you can put one of your houses on a spot of that colour. And that's one of the things you can use transport tokens for to jump over spots. And some of them give you multi-colours. So you can go any colour. And that will give you access to different spots for these search actions most of the cards in your hand have got a certain number of gps tokens on them you flip over a stack of however many are left they all start with three in but they can get taken by players if you get to the target number that that particular resource on the search token requires you get to keep the search token that give you points or resources or money or different things and in fact they're going to score you some points at the end of the game as well the other thing you're going to do when you lay these houses on the board is if you ever completely surround an area with your colour houses, you've secured that area, the search tokens are going to get taken off, you're going to score points depending upon how many of these nodes are around the edge of it, and everyone who has any presence is going to score a handful of points for doing that. Another thing to note is that when you do searching, you're always going to lose one of the cards from your hand that you've sent on the search, and it'll be randomly drawn, and they go into a hospital. Now, at the end of the game, you're going to score points for every single card that you've got in your deck or that you've laid out in your action columns but those in the hospital are not going to score your points you start with a doctor character however and when you play the doctor character you'll get those cards back out the hospital they'll score you points according to the points on them and how hard objectives are to finish is directly linked to how many points they'll be worth to you every time you rescue them from the hospital or at the end of the game if they're just in your deck you're also going to get to buy different objectives in order to refresh them there's always three rows whenever a row runs out it's automatically filled up again they come in those 
volunteers or specialists as discussed. And that is the timer for the game in that the deck of cards is split with a little reserve. And when you get to the bottom of the main deck, you know you're in the penultimate round, one more round to go in order for you to continue securing and scoring points. Food and water resources will perish at the end of each round. You can hand them in for a little something. But once you get all the way through that deck, you're going to check and see and score some end game points. That will be for all the cards in your deck and tableau. For the scout tokens you've collected for having different types, you get to score a handful of points. And also your resources convert to money, convert to points, but there's very few points to be scored that way. You're much better off using them to score points more efficiently. So Sean, Blackout Hong Kong to me at least, I think to a lot of people, is a very attractive theme. It's exciting, you're doing something different, it's an emergency situation, you're rushing to help, it sounds like there's going to be a big story there. How much theme did you find in this game? Firstly, Ronan, yeah, the theme had some appeal, but I wouldn't say very attractive. It's a blackout, you're restoring power, it's not that exciting. But I I was definitely interested in that theme. When we get what, to the what game... killed you on the inside? <laughs> a blackout. There's so many things can be going on. There's mayhem. You're looking to restore order, or are you looking to snipe in and make advantage of it? We live on the good side of the law, the bad side of the law. There are options there for a theme and a story, mate. None, none of which were explored in the game. Well, admittedly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that theme really didn't come through at all. It was it was a puzzle, really. It was it was a puzzle, and I suppose if you are trying to restore power in a blackout, it is it is a bit of a puzzle. But they could have. There's lots of things they could have done. To, as you've listed some of them there to make it a more thematic, involving experience. Uh, but at no point were you even working to restore power. I guess that's not what you would be doing if you were on the ground, because. You wouldn't have access to the National Grid. You would just be worried about food and water and getting people together and keeping them safe and stuff. So it depends on what level we're looking at. I think people expected to be at a higher level dealing with the actual issues. Was This tries to place you on the ground just helping people survive and get through this. It sounds like it's gone, you know, everything's broken down very quickly in terms of society. I don't know how quickly it would break down. I have to applaud them for trying to put a different theme on there. I I very much they get credit for the fact it's not the same old, same old, but it's not as thematic as I think some people hoped when just the title was announced. As you said, like a lot of people were drawn in by that theme. The artwork on the front of the box is, is quite intriguing. But one of the things that really disappointed me, Ronan, was when I opened that box and we started playing, it just didn't look good at all. To my eyes, it really it looked felt cheap. It looked almost prototypish, just boring feel to it. It looked like a bog standard Euro game. I disagree. Do you? I, I actually quite like the aesthetic of the game in what they've attempted to do. I think that the final job they did wasn't great, especially you can't play it unless the lighting is, is very bright. Because it's dark, I get that, the theme, it's black, but the colours are very muted. There's a lot of information on certain cards. It's hard, very hard to tell purple from blue from red in limited lighting, mm. and those are three of the colours of the cards. So, yeah. especially looking on the board... It's, Having a grey and white as, as two of the colours and the player colours... Yeah, not great. wasn't a great choice. Admittedly, but I like what they tried to do 
Uh, and so aesthetically, actually, it doesn't bother me. I don't get that prototype idea or anything like that. I think the execution was slightly flawed. It just didn't inspire me at all, Ronan. It didn't excite me. It didn't make me go, oh, that looks interesting. If I didn't know what the theme was, I'd just think it was some sort of, let's chain a computer program together and program something. Or I don't know. It just didn't. But you're just describing the problem with Euros. That's what yeah, they feel like. maybe, maybe. But at least they tried, mate. At least it's not the name of an Italian Renaissance fan. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes they try and throw a bit of nice art at the Euros, get Clement Franz in or something like that. No, we've seen that a million times. We have seen it a million times. But I think nowadays, I'm sitting here looking at Crown of Amara. Yeah, it does have slightly different things going on, and we will be reviewing it at some stage. But the artwork on the game itself... It might, it might not even be thematically linking the game, but it just looks nice. You're and crazy. It looks, looks like I want to play that game. But no, you're crazy. One, that game, Crown of Amara looks like 300 other games. 300 other pretty games. But they all look the same. Yeah, I can't... I moan so much by people doing the same thing. I, I agree. It looks different. I, 100%. Yeah, it looks different and it stands out from the crowd. 100%. It's just not pleasing to my eye. That's fair enough, but that's a personal opinion that's wrong. So that's all right. <laughs> what I do like, Ronan, and it's it's a mechanism that was used in Mombasa by Alexander Pfister, it's that card slot replenishment mechanism and that need to plan ahead. And that is something that I really did enjoy about this game. I love the way that you do have to plan ahead. You do have to think about what cards are going into what columns and they're going to be the cards that you're going to get back into your hand to use in in subsequent turns. That is a very interesting mechanism. I found that to be very tactical. Oh, 100%, Uh, yes, yes. There are certain colours you're trying to get in a column that you know, right, I need a yellow, yellow, red, red down here. Which cards to play on which round, that drives it a bit. What card you want to get back quicker drives it a bit. But more often than not, to me, it was a roll of the dice that was the issue. And... What I was trying to do after I played a few times was have a flexible hand. I make sure I had access to yellows, reds, and blues, so that no matter what was rolled, if I needed a particular thing, I had access to it. Yes. And that was all short term. That was the the longer term planning for me was in what objectives I was taking, so that it was setting up my board position and making sure I didn't get loads of objectives that needed the same resources. You don't want to be stuck needing seven food to do your objectives. So it was things like that that gave you the long-term planning. I never felt like my engine was set up and running correctly. Every beginning of every round, I was thinking again, right, what should I do? Where should I go? And I think the, the resource dice mechanism adds to that sort of having to plan on the seat of your pants sort of thing it is very tactical and it doesn't lend itself to a long-term plan even though you do have to have some sort of long-term plan with those with those check marks running yeah and here's something that kind of i wasn't sure if the balance was completely correct and it's the random factor in the game now, the dice obviously are a random factor. You cannot plan for them. As they come up, you need to be flexible, have the transport tokens, have the variety of cards in your hand. Also, the market, especially at higher player counts, can be very volatile, and it's very easy for cards to just get wiped. In fact, some cards get wiped before anyone has an access to buy them because if a, 
a row completely refreshes always in a turn the right hand card left will always get taken out so if you've just been refreshed no one buys anything that card's gone and no one can touch it and I, that happens more often and quicker when you're playing with more players and that volatility on top of the randomness of the dice but I think the straw that broke my camel's back for me was the randomness in the scouting tokens in that you can be lucky and flip over and it has the two resources that perfectly match with the objectives you've got, especially early in the game. You know, I flipped over a spanners one. I need the spanners to do this objective. Boom, my deck is up and running quicker than yours. That's the one bit. I could deal with the dice, the volatility in the market. I, th- I prefer it with fewer players. So it's not quite churning over so quickly, but I can live with it. The scout tokens push me a little bit on the edge. Yeah, I think it pushes it almost sort of too tactical and adding that little bit of complete random into a tactical game, I think it kind of maybe just pushes it slightly, as you said, just slightly too far away from having that plan and having that cleverness and being able to be clever in the game. Okay, the last point I had to make to Sean was just to mention there's a solo mode, Uh, there's nominally a solo campaign it's not really a campaign what it is is a series of five or six challenges whereby the game sets what your objectives are that you have to do might be set a set number of points or a certain number of things done on your emergency plan everyone starts the game with an emergency plan with a way of earning money by doing certain things and it sets the size of the market and it can set it really big and you've got a big points target or really really small and you've got a really race to get things done so i tried it it was a really interesting challenge. It almost felt like a training mode and that if you play the solo game, because you're playing it and you've got control on when the market goes and when it doesn't and no one else is taking scout tokens, you can run in isolation and have much more control of what's going on, which prepares you better for the more volatile game with more players. So I think actually it's quite a good way for players to learn it and, and to get better at the game. But it didn't really grab me. And once I'd completed the challenge, I was like, yeah, there's no reason really for me to go back and do that again. So it was a nice thing to have in there. No reason not to, but it didn't blow me away. So what you're saying there is like you kind of almost hinting that the the solo mode, you've got sort of more control. Do you feel that there's any real interaction in the multiplayer game? Well, there is. There's, There's on the board... Do you follow people and try and scab points off them as they as they secure neighbourhoods? Or do you go off and keep control of your own area and just complete your own neighbourhoods? Do you, in terms of the scout tokens, if they take one out that you're after or you're planning, it's got a higher target, so you, you won't be able to get it at the beginning of the game, but you think, oh, I actually really need that petrol, for example. Oh, you've taken the petrol one. There's interaction like that. Where the most interaction would be would be in the market, But in order for that to be meaningful interaction, you would have to follow what every other player is doing, what their current objectives are, what they're trying to do on the board, and then be making decisions based on, oh, I think you you want that one because you're really after a red card. Because by getting the the house down in a red space, you're going to really link together your areas and things like that. And it's an amount of effort that doesn't really reward that amount of effort. There's not enough interaction for you to do that. But it's there if you want it to be there, if you yeah. can be bothered to put that much effort in. So I think the, the vast majority of this game is what I would call a cheap interaction. It's, it's easy oh, interaction. Oh, derogatory it's, terms. Yeah, there you go. But it's, it's that interaction that 
yes, I can go and take something that you need or do something just before you that stops you getting the maximum points or being able to do it at all. And that, that's easy to do. That's easy for a designer to place in. It's quite an easy thing to do. I think genuine interaction is lacking in this game. It may be slightly in the market, and as you said, you do have to follow what everybody's doing to be able to really manipulate it to to the nth degree. Do you, do you want to do it? And is it rewarding enough? Probably not. So I do think there is a, a problem with lack of inter- interaction with this game. There was a, a lot of down words being used there. I'm not feeling sunshine and roses, Sean. Do you want to give us your final thoughts on Blackout Hong Kong? I'll start with Ronan. I don't dislike it. What I do think it is, I think it's quite a dry economic puzzle with quite a basic, and it sounds harsh, uninspiring area control aspect going on. It is a brain workout. It's not tedious, but what I would say, it's it's competent. And I think what takes it down that slight notch for me is that I don't like the art. I don't feel that the theme comes through at all so it just leaves me a bit cold it leaves me a little bit mm, unexcited i'm not excited to play this game ronan and that for me leaves blackout hong kong as one that i again we say all the time one that i will play but i'm not seeking out plays well i'm more positive about it than you are sean it's definitely a puzzle every time and it's thinky, and you have to engage with that puzzle. The game is not going to grab you by the face because it doesn't have the theme and the looks to do that. It's definitely more chaotic with more players. So manipulate the player count to suit whatever you prefer. You have to try and stay flexible with a long-term plan, but still be, like I said, ready to, to pounce and move, and whatever those dice come up, you can do something with them and you're not wasting turns. I've played it six times. I've played it at all player counts. I've seen enough in those six plays for it to go on my shelf, but also I've seen enough of it for now and I don't need to play it again for another, let's say, a year, 18 months, at which point I anticipate I would get it off the shelf, play it two or three times, remember why I like it, don't let it overstay its welcome, pop it back on that shelf again, and it will be one that's in sort of a loose rotation for a few years anyway. So Blackout Hong Kong, good, But I think it's for each player to play and decide how much that puzzle grabs them as to whether it's worth your investment. Okay, so we're going to move on now to Architects of the West Kingdom, 2018 release. It's designed by Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald, coming from Garpill Games and Renegade Games, playing one to five players. In Architects of the West Kingdom... We are royal architects competing to impress our king and maintain the noble standing in the Carolingian Empire, which is circa 850 AD. The aim of the game here is to construct individual buildings or to help to build the the main cathedral. We are going to start with a whole army of workers and there is a very strong worker placement element to the game. You've got your basic resource collection areas. You can collect gold, stone, wood, brick, and coins. And the general rule of thumb in the, across the whole game is the more workers you have in an area, the more produce you're going to get when you place another worker in. You also have a workshop where you're going to buy worker cards. Now, these worker cards allow you to build certain buildings They also are going to give you a certain power in the game. 
Also at the workshop, you can get building project cards. And these are going to be give you the cards that you're going to construct the buildings to score your points and get instant or end of game powers. In the King's Storehouse, we are going to either gain virtue or gain marble, marble being the most rare of resources in the game. The money that we are spending to buy some of these things is going to go into the tax stand and we can steal from it. So you can go to the tax stand and you can steal it, but you're going to lose a virtue. So that brings us to another area, which is the black market, another area where we're going to lose virtue and you're going to gain goods and building projects in the black market. And as I said, you're going to pay the penalty by losing that virtue. So, all sounds fairly bog standard, doesn't it? What changes it all up is you can go to the town centre and the town centre is going to allow you to capture groups of other people's workers or your own if you want to gather them back up and put them onto your player board. Why are you doing this? Because later on you can go to the guardhouse and you can send your captured workers to prison and earn money for it you can release your own prisoners you can pay to release your workers from other players boards and this is cost more than releasing them from prison or you can pay off a debt because debt's one of the things you're going to get if you release your workers from other players boards if the black market ever fills or a certain number of build actions happen, then the black market is going to reset and that means workers in the black market are going to go to prison and you're going to face penalties for having at least three people in prison or the majority in prison. The game ends after a certain amount of buildings are completed. Ronan, Architects of the West Kingdom starts off feeling quite bland and samey but then, as I said, you do have that mechanism in there that you're going to capture other people's workers. And I think the whole game hinges on how the, well that works and how well it triggers other aspects of the game. What's your initial impression of that? Of the arresting or of the entire game? Let's go with, well, the entire game, but how the arresting of the people affected the game. I kind of have to build up to that point, if you don't mind indulging me for a second. Go for it. Well, you've got these two different types of cards, uh, the buildings and the apprentices, and it says you can build a maximum of six buildings or you can have a maximum of five apprentices in play. And it's a euro, and you're collecting wood, and you're collecting stone, and you, you start with 20 workers, and you're like, okay, so obviously if I start with 20 workers, I'm going to have to put four or five in the quarry or four or five in the forest. And eventually I'm going to get loads and loads of resources and I'll, I'll build up this tableau and I can see these apprentices help me do things. And what I'm looking to do here is build a nice tableau, get my engine running. So in the last few rounds, I'm going to score loads and loads of points and we'll be sitting here for two hours playing a good, decent, meaty, if to steal a phrase, bog standard Euro. That's, that's my first impression, Sean, all right? Mm-hmm. Then Architects of the West Kingdom went running past me naked with body paint on, drinking tequila and, and shaking things that shouldn't be shook and went, go, 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 because the game's about to finish, the game's about to finish. Five apprentices, I don't think I ever got more than three out and try to try build six buildings before that game ends. This, this whole thing is a really, really fast wolf in sheep's clothing. So that's the key as to why... The arresting works for me 
Because if it was slow, if you could put out five workers into the quarry and you collect, you know, 15 bits of stone and then someone arrests them, so it's fine, I'll just build up to five again. You are never going to get the chance to put five workers back in that quarry again. So when the arrest comes, it matters. And when someone decides to stimmy you, because if I don't get that last turn to put that dude in the quarry to get my four stone that I need to finish this plan, to build these buildings, to work with that, to combat win, to claim the clay, to build that, to do it all comes together. It is a problem because the game is rushing past and rushing past and going so fast that what it sounds like, and when I was first described to me, is you get arrested and your workers aren't as powerful anymore. And I was like, all right, so what? The pace of it is what makes the arresting work. I also think... It really does. It makes everybody else pay full attention to every turn you're turking because you don't want people to to build up too many workers in I don't know the the clay pit or the or the forest because they are going to be getting loads of resources and they also become a target for you to earn some money because money can be quite tight unless you're going to consistently rob the tax stand but which isn't available if other people are doing it yeah yeah so if one well, person yeah, how many times stand, has someone yeah. gone to tax stand on you and you go I was just about to go Exactly. So you you do need that sort of money income from arresting people. So you have got your eye on these groups of sort of three and four people building up and you think, right, okay, now's the time to pop in. I'll, I'll take seven people. I can go to the guardhouse the next turn and I can earn myself seven money from, from dobbing them all into prison. So it makes you pay full attention to everybody else's turn and and that is what i call clever interaction in the game it's not cheap it it makes you watch the game did you set this point up a minute ago (laughs) because that's some clever podcasting there you go that yeah that that was the beauty it took me a while to see that ronan but once i did see it i thought that that's actually quite clever it has a few effects for starters it means you're concentrating on the board state all the time, even when it's not your turn. Exactly what you said. You're aware where everyone is on the board. The other two things it does is it means you don't dibble dabble around. I'll oh, leave a couple in the forest, a couple in the quarry, one here, one there, because they're going to get taken away. If you're going for wood, you go. I'm getting wood. I'm getting wood. I'm getting wood. I'm getting wood. I got arrested. Right now with this wood, I'm going to go do something else. And so it keeps you sharp and focused on what you're trying to do. And every action matters. And the third thing I think it does, Sean, is it forces you to look for alternatives. Because if you can get ways by like get an apprentice, which means you can go to the king's storehouse to pay for extra things, or I need stone, it's worth me getting that apprentice that gives me one extra stone every time I go to the quarry so that I can go there twice and get five, and then I'm not a target with only two sitting there. And if ever I need to take that extra four, people probably won't arrest me for two, maybe. Depends how vicious the game is. And it just means there's laser focus and everything that's going on, which again ties into the point I made that the game's so quick, you can't blur around and waste actions. And it all pulls it in really, really tight. And another thing that that arresting mechanism does is you've also got the ability or the the choice to make just to hold on to people's workers. So as the, as the game goes on and people are placing, because you have to place a worker, when you build a building, you place a worker and that game, worker is out of the game. So 
the workers do start to dwindle and then all of a sudden people do get down to their last two or three workers and they start to think well that player's got some more workers and that player's got some more workers and nobody's doubled them into prison so if you ha- have managed to get some sort of money income and you don't have to spend the, to go to the prison to get that money then it is a infinitely more expensive for somebody else to take them off your player board than it is for them to take them out of the prison so it's another opportunity to to exploit people in the game and that's why i think it is it's about exploiting opportunities and other players is it is it infinitely less expensive <laughs> okay all right wrong with <laughs> It is largely. <laughs> and what that also does, you're completely right. Because well, when you first see those 20 workers, you're like, I'm never going to run out. A lot of these mechanisms don't mean anything. How can I? Oh, I've run out. I, yeah, I, definitely, I did just run out. Had that happen? Another thing is that means that downtime is minimal or at least feels minimal because you're always looking. Uh, you're expecting someone to go to the guardhouse. Oh, I'll go and collect them back then. Oh, they haven't gone this time. Ah, now I have to change my plan. What am I going to do? So that is also another thing that I like a lot about it. One of the other things I think, Sean, that one of the criticisms is, and I think you've experienced this, so I'm going to lay this to you, is that you can either build the cathedral to score those points and get in the guild hall, or you can build buildings to score points and go in the guild hall. Because the game rewards early planning and having a path and saying, I'm going to build this clay pit with this wood to give me extra clay and that clay will turn into a guard tower, which with that guard tower, that will give me access to something else, which will give me the marble I need to build a, a castle, etc., etc. Having an early plan is advantageous because you're less likely to waste actions. It's easier to see the plan in the cathedral because all the costs are laid out for you at the beginning of the game. And on initial plays, playing to the cathedral can feel stronger than playing building cards. Oh, 100%. And I think to a certain degree, Ronan, you do have to maybe not challenge to, to get to the... Because the cathedral sort of it narrows, if that makes any sense, as you got the places that you can build on narrow. So everyone can build on the first rung of the cathedral. That's because it's got a steeple, Sean. Otherwise well, there you go. Really... There you go. So... And only one person can get to the top level of the building of that cathedral and get the, I think, it's 20 it's a points. Because it's a steeple. So I think it, it definitely benefits you to keep up with the cathedral. Or just trash it. No, it's not going to happen. The one thing that, that does do, though, that whole fact that the cathedral is laid out, is that you're then quite dependent upon card draw. And if your initial, you do a draft of buildings at the beginning, if your initial draft of buildings doesn't give you something that you look at it, and you go, I can see how I'm going to make these four work together, or at least three of them, whatever. And then your initial, you might go in to uh, to the plate where you draw extra building cards, and you look at those, and you go, nah, these just don't work together. Then you've got to go Cathedral, and you've got to go hard for that game. There's, you don't have enough time to cycle through loads of building cards. You just go, right, that's it, that's the decision made for me. So sometimes card draw can dictate what your strategy is going to be for the game. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And... You really can't dally. You can't sort of eke out a few rounds just to see where the game's going, who's doing what, and then sort of work out your your strategy. As you said, you've really got to go from the beginning and you've got to know exactly what you're doing. So those first few games, they can be difficult to get your head round running. They can be, you kind of can get caught out by the speed of the game and be left in limbo a little bit. Because I remember my first game, I was thinking... 
I didn't really get to do anything. I was just kind of, I was kind of feeling my way around. Somebody, as you said, went straight for that cathedral uh, thing, started firing down the meeples that were going to finish the game, and all of a sudden, we were on the last row of meeples uh, for the buildings, and I had been, hadn't built anything, and I managed to eke out two buildings. But I just thought, what, what happened? I think it's very reliant upon the person teaching the game to make it clear to new players what the nature of the game is. Because of the wolf in sheep's clothing thing, because it looks like a heavy Euro, you're going to be done with this in 45 to 50 minutes. It's it's actually a super filler. Yeah, I think the next one is uh, Paladins of the West Kingdom that's going to be coming out soon. I think that's going to be the game that everyone thought this would be it's going to be quite a deep meaty crunchy euro game set in the same world obviously but everyone thought that this was going to be that that, it's it's our world by the way mate it's just the past it's not a different world (laughs) thanks for that (laughs) setting that timeline is that better i was picking on you today i don't know yeah, that's better. That's good. I'm really looking forward to Paladins, actually, which is kind of giving away part of my final thoughts on this one. But I wanted to make one more thing. is the two-player bot, or the solo bot, if you want to, but I've, I've used it in a two-player game to add a third player because the two-player game was a little low in interaction. The arresting is obviously all zero-sum. The way the two-player bot works is it's just a deck of cards that flips over. It's got an advanced deck of cards, and sometimes it brings advanced cards into it, and it goes around and it nicks the money from the tax stand. It builds, so it fills up the guild hall, accelerating the game. It arrests a lot. A lot of your workers will get arrested by this bot and then hands them back in and scores points. Now, the easy one, once you've played a couple of times, the easy one probably won't beat you. The hard one is actually a genuine sort of challenge, actually, and just for a simple, you take your turn, I take my turn, we flip one card, its actions are done in 10 seconds. It's a fantastic two-player bot. And it's playing with a bot player is not something I've enjoyed almost in any game, but in this one it worked really, really well. Yeah, it definitely did. And it, as you said, it doesn't take up any time or any real thought. Like The cards tell you exactly what to do very quickly, very, very clearly what you have to do. And it just, yeah, it just adds that additional sort of mindset that you're not just going to be eking back and forth between the two players and also in just the two player game you could pretty much kind of leave each other alone and do a bit of a resting leave each other alone do a bit of a resting it just mixes it up a little bit and it is very good and you end up having to arrest their dues because unless they're getting them back they actually end up scoring more points if you don't arrest them you'll lose the game to it which yes. means, yeah, it, it generates that thing. I also have to rest as well as I'm getting arrested and simulates that multiplayer experience. Okay, you ready for me to Yes, off up? you go. I think if the game lasted any longer, then probably it wouldn't work on, on this gimmick because it, it would be more standard. The pace of it is key. It means that the arrests are meaningful. It means that you have to make early decisions, that you need flexibility, that bonuses that are small that you claim from apprentices what have you are actually worth it that you need to have a coherent strategy with your buildings you need to understand what you're doing with virtue and why you're doing it and then when that end game comes in and the guild hall gets mostly fill up and suddenly everyone realizes this could be over in just one or two more turns around the table the end game kicks in everyone starts to sprint you're smashing out points as quickly as you can and it finishes in under an hour and it's a very very good game for that length 
it was always a game that I was going to pick up because I'm a big fan of Shem Phillips and I love the the Miko who's, who does the art of the game. Uh, so I was expecting that crunchy deep Euro head bender, but it is a lot lighter. It is hard to make plans due to being so interactive, but it becomes a clever tactical puzzle. At its, at its heart, it's a simple worker placement, but it's elevated by a simple twist, and that twist is the capturing and releasing of those prisoners. And I think they've got the balance of it just right. So for me, Architects of the West Kingdom is an, is an absolute winner, and I'm glad to have it in my collection. And so am I, because we both own this one. Yes, we do. How lovely. Okay, should we go on to the last game of this half? Yes, let's do it. Set sail. It's Captains of the Gulf, coming from Jason Dinger. It's two to four players, 90 minutes plus, from Spielwerks. All the players are competitive playing as captains of fishing boats in the Gulf of Mexico. And there is a rondel action selection in using allowing you to use multi-use cards to catch shrimp, clams, or crabs, and sell at three ports. At the end of eight rounds, whoever's got the most money is going to be the winner. Now, there are six actions you can select on this rondel, and you simply move your double around clockwise. It's free to move a couple of spaces, and you must pay money to move further than that, although you can move as far as you like. There are port and there are sea halves to this rondel action mechanism and for the sea half you can be able to move and fish when you fish there are hexes on the board they're spread out and they've got different fishing grounds on there you move your ship to an area where there are some sort of catch to be had and you discard cards that match the type of catch you're trying to get and you'll collect tokens from there your boat starts being able to hold only two catch tokens you must also have the appropriate license and paid for it and tucked it above your boat because these cards are multi-use and you've just heard two of the uses in the middle it's going to have a picture of catches so that's one use and the second one is they can be put as licenses and tucked under the top of your own boat when you can customize during the course of this game when you fish you put in certain stock markers and they will deplete over time and then once you've had a certain amount of time going through then those stocks are going to rejuvenate unless people have been back there fishing again when you get round to port, and you can sail back into port, by the way, as one of your actions on the seaside, you can upgrade your boat as discussed. You can buy more licenses. The more valuable catches are going to cost you more money. You can put boat upgrades or crew upgrades, and they are going to give you all sorts of different things you can do, and we'll come back to them in one second. The two other actions you can do in port is to refuel your boat for free. It starts with a fuel tank size of six. You can upgrade it via upgrades to eight or 10. And every time you move through a hex to go fishing or go back to port, it's going to cost you fuel. If you run out of fuel on the way back to port, you have to pay money to get towed back in. The last thing you can do is sell your catch. Now, when you sell your catch, each catch token is going to be worth a certain amount of money you're going to move up on a track in that port and you have to move on all three port tracks or you'll be penalized points and if you move far enough up a port track you will score some bonus points at the end of the game and each of these ports in fact will be randomized and they will specialize in one of the three catches and give you extra points for extra money for having sold that there the Eight rounds are timed by this rondel mechanism, and every time a player goes all the way around and crosses a certain point, it's going to move on a timer. Now, for each round, there's going to be an event. 
either that's going to mean that you're going to have to do something at the end of the round, maybe get a bonus, possibly pay money, or it could be something that changed things during the course of the round. And the game is split into A halves and B halves. Now, in the A half, you also have access to bonus actions in that you and you can get bonus action markers to allow you to do more. And there are certain things, again, you can do important things, you can do at C, and they're generally slightly worse versions of the six main actions you can do. So I talked about crew and ship upgrades, and generally they're going to improve the things we've been talking about above. So I mentioned a bigger fuel tank, or you might be able to move for less fuel, or if you stick in an area and continue fishing, you have to idle, you might be able to do that for free. You might be able to use two cars instead of one to fish if you get particular crew members. You might be able to move around the rondel. You might be able to cook your catch, and it'll be worth more money when you sell it. So Sean... You start with a very simple boat with one license which you have to pay for, a hand of six cards, and you are looking to invest in your boat and improve it in order to earn end game, well, to have most money at the end of the game. And the whole game is an economic balance between investment and reward for your fishing. And that sounds like it might be a Sean type of game. The upgrading of the boat and making it my boat and having... Unique to everybody else on the other table is certainly something that I do enjoy. I think the whole game itself is 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 kind of an exercise in efficiency and planning, and it's also got that that timer element, hasn't it, Roland? I think that's key to winning this game is that timer element of when you stop upgrading and you start just scoring those points. Yeah, and the way you earn money is going to accelerate during the course of the game. And at the beginning, you basically don't have enough money to put on the upgrades that you want. As you upgrade your boat, you earn more money, which means you're tempted to put on more and more upgrades. Now, certain events might stimulate you. They make you pay maintenance for equipment or make you pay wages to your different staff so they can stop you and, and make you not want to... But it's very tempting to keep upgrading and keep upgrading and keep upgrading but at a certain point, you're not going to get a return on the investment. I think it might be hard for first-time players to judge when that tipping point comes and when's the correct time to stop investing. Yeah, it's definitely a learning curve. The first couple of times, because I, I, I like upgrading. I like, uh, there's something I enjoy of the game. And I don't necessarily enjoy the actual fishing. I found the fishing to be actually quite repetitive. And yeah, you go out, you get some fish, you bring them back to port. You go out, you bring thematic yeah but quite repetitive quite boring the enjoyment factor in this game was the upgrading of the boat so i tended to concentrate on that a little bit too much until i learned the game running a lot of this is thematic to the overall experience of the fishing in the gulf some things aren't but in terms of the fact that the game represents one season and a lot of it is to do is what your timing is and is it worth spending loads of money because you can only make a certain amount of money in a season and there's only going to be a limited number of times you can go fishing and therefore it's kind of judging how much is this catch going to be worth in the long run and and treating this as a one-off, one-year, get in, get out, make some money. It it gives you that feel of a race and trying to beat other players to certain catches and trying to get ahead in certain sales markets. And the way the stocks dwindle, that feels thematic for me. There's another bit to it that doesn't. But but 
Sean, that race element of, of getting out and getting there and beating people to the fishing stocks, that I think was the most interesting part of the fishing to me. Yeah, but that was that was quite fleeting. Once you was that were... was that a fishing joke? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Did it not yeah. hook you? Didn't. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. It was quite fleeting though, Ronan, because it was a case of once you once you set sail and you heard a certain amount of petrol and people, you know where everyone else is on the board, and you know what your plan is in place. You know you're going to get to those fish first, so. There was a bit of excitement. Can I turn around quickly enough? Can I plan my my moves sort of three ahead to make sure that I get back to those fish first before they get fished out? But what all of these mechanisms together made me think about the game is that it is very thematic, or at least I found the whole thing very thematic. Even the looks, I mean... Initial looks, I thought, oh, it looks quite bland, but somehow they're quite fitting, quite thematic, and it works. The repetition of the fishing it is thematic. The luck of where the fish appear it is thematic, because fish don't just sit there and wait to be fished. They move around. So it all felt very thematic in terms of a fishing game. It's just whether you find a fishing game entertaining. Yeah, what, indeed, yeah. I mean, that will be crucial if you're playing a fishing game. <laughs> One area I particularly thought was interesting was the stock management issue in terms of if you someone goes and fishes an area and then goes away again, if you went back in there to take the last scraps of you know, one or two tokens that are in there, you're absolutely delaying the rejuvenation and the stocks might not recover in the course of a single game, meaning that there are fewer fish out there to catch for everyone, even though the things you're catching are fish. They're all crustaceans. But anyway, <laughs> we'll just call them fish. There are fewer stock for everyone to catch. And it's the case of, look, I know in doing this, it means that there's, there's less money in the game and we're going to have less to do towards the end when the season's dying. But I need that fish because I need that money. And it kind of put you in that dilemma that I guess people really faced and, and still face when they're not managed fisheries and that, well, I need the money now, mate. I've got, I've got to make a living. I don't care about what happens in two months' time. That bit kind of really struck home to me. Yeah, it kind of made you appreciate sort of governments and Greenpeace and what have you campaigning for fishermen to stop. But fishermen saying, well, hang on, I've got to put, I've got to put food on the table for my family, so I, I'm going to go out and fish. So absolutely. But one thing, Ronan, that drove almost the whole game was that rondel. And I just found that rondel quite boring, quite bland. It was very important what I had to do, but I didn't really have to put too much thought into planning. It was kind of quite obvious what I had to do next. I think you're not wrong in that you kind of feel like your next three or four moves are always planned out for you. What I found interesting in terms of action selection was the crucial bonus actions. And over the course of a game, you're going to get 12 per game which is about a quarter of all your actions roughly are going to be bonus actions and when and how I use them very much drove what I did on the rondel and the pattern of what I was doing as opposed to what is the main action selection the rondel driving what I was doing because like you said quite often that followed a predictable pattern so I th the bonus actions were a massive part of the game for me Sean yeah that was it was another learning curve wasn't it the bonus actions it was 
the first couple of games, it was a case of... I, I you kind of forget to do them most yeah, of the time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, completely. Forget to do them, maybe not use them as efficiently, and then you realise, actually, if I do this, and then I don't have to do that on the Ronda, I and mean, I can I can concentrate on this, and yeah, and all of a sudden, your engine starts clicking into gear. Was that another joke? <laughs> You're full of them today, man. The fuel tank is up to the brick. I'm just giving fuel for your fire, mate. Hey, okay. I must have the cooking upgrade. Is that going too far? No, probably. Okay. Um, one last thing. Now, there's, there is mitigation in there for luck of the draw, but on occasion, your best laid plans can be stimmied by just luck of the draw. Specifically, I found that you might not have particular fishing cards that you require at the time to, to make an efficient fish, meaning you'll drop maybe an action behind someone else who's then going to beat you to the best grounds and things like that. That, I felt a little bit was a bit annoying. I was like, why can't I catch? I've got a setup, I've got a license, I've got crew, I've got a boat, but something is stopping me from catching the fish that I can see is there. Now, whether that's thematic and it's like some days they just won't bite and they won't go in your, your nets or go in your pots, I don't know. But it, it grated a little me. It, it was a bit of grit in my clamshell. <laughs> I think certainly at the beginning of the game and the end of the game, that felt really sort of problematic. But in the middle of the game, you you, you have access to those cards. You know you, you're going to see them at some stage. So you just go and fish something else. At the beginning of the game, you, you want to set out your stall to go and do things and go to the, the right harbour to, to pay in the fish to get the, all the crustaceans to get their extra, we'll just extra points. Fish, <laughs> just go and fish. Yeah. And as we go on towards the end, when especially if... In that in that famous game that you tweeted out, Ronan, where we completely fished the whole <laughs> Gulf dry, just just completely destroyed all fishing for generations to come. Yeah, I'm when so you get to, <laughs> to when you get towards the end, and there's maybe only one or two types left, then it comes becomes super frustrating not to be able to not to have that type. Right, Sean. There's been ups and downs in in your comments. There, do you want to sum us up on Captains of the Gulf? Captains of the Gulf took me by surprise, Ronan. I went in thinking I'm not going to enjoy this game. It does look bland, but when I just when I started to get my head around it and started to think, actually, it is a fishing game, and I actually do feel like I am out fishing and having to plan my life accordingly as a fisherman. Then I started to see the hidden hidden beauty of the game, Ronan. It's a game that I definitely want to play again, but I think plays will need to be spread out i think i'm coming at this one very similar to you in your summary of blackout hong kong in that yeah i'd like to play it i'd like to play it multiple times but i don't think i could play one after the other i do worry about the longevity whether there's enough of those upgrades in the game and the repetitive nature of the fishing would would sour me against playing it just too often. But it's certainly a much better game than I gave it credit for at first. There's a lot I enjoy about Captains of the Gulf. The way the stocks rise and fall and you can have sun blooms, you know, a run on a certain type of fish. The fact that you're customising your boat, the race to get to certain stocks ahead of the other players, the pressure to skip spaces on the rondel should you spend money, should you hire first mates to get moving around the place, 
and especially the mechanism of the bonus actions, when and how to use them. You don't have long to use them each round, but your choice of how to use them is absolutely vital. All that stuff I love. The main problem I have with it is that I feel the whole overall arc of the game is a little unsatisfying in that you start with absolutely nothing and just a basic boat. And somehow over the course of a season, you're upgrading the boat and buying these things and getting in crew and you get better and better. I really wish that that building up of crew and equipment was somehow all done at the beginning of the game. I don't know where you'd have to change it. I'm no game designer, but so that you set your stall out and say, this is what I'm going to go out and fish with. And then all the fishing gets done, you know, and then we see how we did with the boats that we decided to set up. You know, you're trying to make your money back that you've invested at the beginning. Starting each game with nothing and having to slowly build up again, to me, started to feel a bit repetitive and tiresome. And it's that aspect that has made Captains of the Gulf, for me, a good game, but not quite a great game. Okay, so we will join you after this short interlude. Right, okay, welcome back to the second part of this episode, and we're going to crack on with Robin Hood and the Merry Men. It's a 2018 release coming from Final Frontier Games, designed by a whole rake of people. Uh, Ivana Krzyzewski, uh, Maya Matovska, maybe? Martin Poole, Volkan Krzyzewski, and Tony Toshevsky. Martin Poole was right. My Paul was right. I think I got that one just about right. Other than that, I apologise. I'm playing one to five players. It's the story of Robin Hood. I think we all know the story of Robin Hood. The specifics of this one is Maid Marian is going to be forced to marry Prince John. And Robin wants to rescue her. But when he tells the Merry Men, he sees doubt in their eyes. So to win them back, he issues a leadership challenge. And he says that nobody can protect Nottingham better than he can. So he issues the challenge and whoever does protect Nottingham the best over the game will gain the leadership of the Merry Men. So as the story would lead you to believe, we are one of those Merry Men and we're trying to protect the roads into Nottingham. We're stealing the riches from the Sheriff and Prince John. We are battling guards and we're even sending men off to this crusade to King Richard. The game is going to last five rounds, or will it? Because there is an instant lose condition here. If one of the roads is empties of pennies, because they, they all have a certain amount of pennies allocated to them, or if the village is totally overrun by guards, we all lose the game. So the game is played in three phases. You have the Merry Men phase, where you're going to play a card, and you're going to play it to your left or your right side of your player board. The left side is your passive side, and that is going to give you a weaker action, and effectively the action on the board, not on the card. But you can stock these cards up for end-of-game scoring, and you can stock them up for later use. If you play them on the right, you get to use a stronger action on the card itself, and it gives you access to places that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get to from the board. So you're going to place your worker, you're going to gather resources, you're going to gather weapon dice, you can rob the rich, and this is just a game of chance for a, uh, for a lucky dip. You can build traps, you can build roadblocks or barricades, and you can send those envoys to the Crusades for end of game scoring. Now we're going to move on to the villain phase, and you get to do 
one or all of these things. Well, you don't get to do them. You have to do them. The card will dictate that. You're going to draw the villain card and you're going to move the main villain to an area to do something bad to you. You add guards to location. If they go on top of a merry man, then they arrest him. You can capture them. That's why you're building those traps. You can capture those guards. But if the hideout area that you're placing the guards is full, then you must add them to a village track. And as I said before, this is one of the ways to lose the game if the village track becomes full. You also move carriages towards the castle. And if it gets to the end of the road, then you lose money from that road. This is where the barricades come in because that hinders their progress. And again, this is another lose game condition with the road ever empties of money, then you lose the game. Next, you move on to the hero phase. Now you have two actions with your hero and some of the things you can do, you can attack one of those carriages with your weapons dice. You can fight guards at locations and this can rescue the merry men and stop them being overrun. You can free prisoners from the castle jail. You can even enter an archery competition for money. And last, you can give back to the poor and empty that village track that can cost you the game. All along, you're going to be scoring reputation. Reputation is there, very much like scythe works. The higher you are in the reputation track, the more points you're going to score for your end of game point scoring. And that is for traps you've placed, barricades you've placed, and envoys you've sent out. You'll also score points for passive cards whether the pictures match or there's actually points on those cards themselves all in all ronan i think you had a little bit of problem learning this now i cheated a little bit i went on and watched a couple of videos and i didn't pick up the the level of difficulty in that rule book but you certainly did and and i heard all about it no <laughs> no. Me? Surely. Is there another Ronan in your life you need to tell me about? <laughs> so, if you don't mind, I'm just going to step that back a little and walk through, because I think there's kind of a place that I need to go to, but I, I might need to journey through Sherwood Forest to get there, if that's all right. Okay, I don't, don't talk about Sherwood Forest. That's where I hurt my back. Trying to climb a tree, you oaf. (laughs) Jumping out of a tree. I climbed it fine. Jesus, must be some tree. Okay. (laughs) So I'm going to kick in where you usually kick in. Now, have you got like some sort of deluxe or Kickstarter edition? Is there a reason why yours is prettier than maybe the retail version of Robin Hood at the moment? I do have the deluxe version. Okay. It's really pretty. It's gorgeous. It's, It's the Miko. It's the second Miko game that he's done the artwork for. And I think his artwork's always really bright and, one of my words, vibrant. And, uh, yeah, it's very pretty. And not just the artwork, but also the wooden pieces, the fact they all go together. The the overall impression when you lay that game out on the table is, wow, this looks really nice. The iconography on your own board, and indeed on the cards, is good. But then when you start attempting to use the main board either to teach or to use it itself, it's an utter hash. It's just a mess. (laughs) It's not clear what areas what. It's not clear what is flavour art and what is actual useful art. The spaces where you're supposed to put different... So there's like icons that tell you which phase areas activate in are just not easy to see and they're not intuitive. And the whole thing 
from standing back 10 feet looks great, from two feet away trying to use it is physically not a good design. I kind of agree with you. The bit that I definitely agree with you is that they've gone to quite a lot of trouble to sort of have this big sprawling area of Nottingham around Nottingham Castle and they didn't need to use all that space and then they've kind of crammed in a lot of very important action spaces for your either your merry men or your hero to go in right up on the side on the left hand side of the board and it's all kind of mushed together and that very it really isn't very clear i think they could have lessened the artwork which is lovely on the main board and kind of given a bit more sort of prominence to those side areas i concur with you okay and indeed just prominence to function would have been good so I did learn it from the rule book, and the rule book is incomplete in parts. Certainly doesn't deal with edge cases, and it feels poorly structured. And I was constantly having to refer back to it, and I was constantly having to look up, and I was constantly having to check what the three villains do, and I was constantly having to check whether something I did gained me reputation or it gained me straight out victory points. And I was constantly having to just refer all the time back to what was that exactly? What is this exactly? The player raids are absolutely shocking. They don't deserve the name player raid. Player confusion (laughs) would be nearer the mark. So I'm trying to get to, it's an easy game. It's a worker placement game in two phases in which one type of worker can do one of two different actions in one of two ways, depending on what card you play. And the other worker can do slightly different things. And it's, it shouldn't be that complicated to get your head around and take hours to learn and have to be constantly thrown back to the rule book. And when I take all of that down into it and I say, what is going on here? The game is in desperate, screaming, weeping need of a rules edit and development and streamlining and taking out all of the useless noise that doesn't want to be there. Now, I'm going to list a bunch of things I think they could do away with, Sean, but I'll let you come in so I'm not talking for 20 minutes all by myself. I agree with you to a degree. Obviously, we've talked about this at the top of the show. I don't really know what you think about a lot of these games. So, yeah, I, I agree with you up to this point. I think you're probably going to list some of the things that I actually think lend the game charm and make me want to play and make me forgive some of the things that are happening but go on let's start listing Ronan all right I'm going to start with set scoring for your passive cards just doesn't fit the game just it's luck of the draw whether you draw ones that got the same artwork or not because you score for having the ones the same artwork because you've only got a restricted hand of four cards most of the time you can upgrade to five if you need the actions on there, you need the actions on there. And that's what's driving your choice of whether it becomes passive or active. You know, you draw 20 over the course of the game, roughly. It's not worth many points until you collect four or five of the same. And there's about six or eight different types of artwork. So it's just a thing that you, know, you can sit there and you have to teach. And people go, oh, right. And everyone forgets it at the end of their first game. Everyone looks at it and goes, oh, I completely forgot about that. What did I score? 1.3 points, 1.3 points. Eight points, the same as everyone else scored. Okay. That one, I have. I neither agree or disagree. It, it doesn't bother me that it's there. I can see your point, for sure. It, it was there. It gave me some guidance if I had... Because a lot of the cards have very similar things on them. And if I needed to go to the trap area, for instance, to build a trap, then I 
quite often have maybe one or two or three cards of a trap. And if I have one in my passive card that matches, then why not just put it down? It, it didn't bother me as much as it seems to have bothered you. It's just, no, individually, no, it doesn't bother me that much. You can be in there or not. It's as the start of the heap of things I'm about to go through. Yeah, yeah, I get that it. They, they, give, they let, give noise that takes track from the rules and the little things. From, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Get, so get, the second get, thing, those passive cards, when they go in your deck at the end, they'll score zero or one point each. Why? A handful of points, complete noise. You're not putting it in that to score the one point that's on there. So why is it there? It's worth um, you know, a maximum of five or six points when you're scoring 80 to win the game. Yeah, again, same answer, but I get I get where you're going. Okay. <laughs> the picture's building. One of the most crucial things is you said the reputation track was akin to the one inside, and I totally agree. That comparison is obvious to make. And some things you do get your reputation and some things you do get your victory points. The problem in this one is you can never lose reputation. So it's not like Scythe. And in Scythe, reputation is actually a currency which you can spend or sacrifice in order to take certain actions and make certain decisions. But you don't make any decisions based around reputation here. It's just, I get it or I don't get it. Cut it out. Whatever earns me reputation, in fact, earns me VP. The game is mechanically exactly the same. And again, 5% easier to teach. No, I quite liked the, the reputation. There were things that you could... Go for things that give you more reputation and maybe stay away from out-and-out point scoring just to build up that end of end of game. But all, all it is is point scoring. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's end-of-game point scoring. It's, it's just another way of, of having a card that scores you 14 points based on how many of blue cubes you've collected at the end of the game. Are it's you, just, are you like, comparing a completely different game mechanism throwing it in here? Because I think that might be confusing for a listener. <laughs> It's, it's end of you're game not collecting scoring. blue cubes in this game, though, right? Okay, but you're collecting right. But that's something traps. whereby, but right, but the traps are going to score you six points in most games and seven points if you've done loads of reputation things and never any different to six or seven points. You cannot get to the top of that track in a five round game. I challenge anyone to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have got to the top of that track, the actions you've been taking have not been focused around building barricades and traps. Therefore, you're going to score one or two of each. The two mechanisms are in complete conflict to each other. So it's not an engine you're building. I am scoring six or seven points per trap. That's it. Make it six or make it seven. And the actions to get reputation make it victory points. Ooh, I, don't, I don't know if it's that, it's that sort of black and white. Mate, there's three levels on that reputation track and you can't get to the third one. And if you don't get to the first one, you won't score any points. So you're on level one or level two and there's a one point difference per thing depending on if you're on level one or level two. That is noise for no no reason. Okay. Right. Anyway. This one is, is, I'm willing to be persuaded. There's two different types of dice in the game. The fact that you're rolling dice to attack the carriages and attack the guards and clear, I actually quite like that mechanism, and it's a case of I'm going to go for it. If I miss, I get to retain the dice, and they're useful for other things like sending envoys or attacking again or building up. If I do it, it's good. I, 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 I get a reward for doing this. I quite like that. But then there's different skill dice for going to an archery competition or for robbing from the rich. And they're different dice, and there's no need for them to be. And in fact, I think they've got the same probabilities on them. And... It's just another reason when you're first teaching of like, why are there two different types of dice? I don't really know. 
Aren't they the same levels of hits and misses on both sides? No, no, see that, you're saying that there's loads of noise and it's hard to separate things out. They've separated it out for you and they've made that easier, surely. There's there's your skill dice when you're in the castle. These are your dice for for doing everything else. They're your dice that your merry men can collect. These are the dice that you just have. They're not yours, they're just part of that test. That makes it easier for me to understand. I can see your point of view on it. I was just like, the whole Robin from the Rich and the archery competition. The archery competition, you're earning a couple of silver from it. It just seemed like a thing to do if you've got nothing else to do. Robin from the Rich, I know you're saying you like it. It's the dip in the bag. I Yeah, it can be very swingy because if you get five or six goods out of that and the maximum you can get from any other action is two... Ooh. But it's a it's a massive risk because you can you can end up getting arrested. It's not that much for a risk, is it? You just bowl in and pay some wine and roll your dice and you're out again. Yeah, but it's it's a risk. It's it's a hindrance in a game that there's not that big a difference in point scoring, and it's just I like it. I, I think I found it. Very but is it a hindrance? Because actually, when we got into after our first play on our on your hero turn, we were running out of things to do. We would just we'd go and do the archery competition because well what else is there for me to do? I attack once a carriage or a guard, and my next action is because I've used my weapon dice to attack. You're usually successful. The odds are in your favour. What should I, I do see, now? now I, we tended to really stack up on dice so that we could attack a guard and do the the carriages and and sort of do that on two fronts. We we went heavy for dice every round. Okay. Well. But where were you, so you were getting the dice with your workers in the initial phase? Yeah, yeah. But then yeah. did you have enough resources to build traps and barricades? Were you scoring points from that? So there's two ways. You can either build loads of traps and barricades or you can attack the coaches and you can attack the guards. So you, it's, it's finding that happy medium, I suppose, isn't it? But uh, this is this is like dichotomy I was talking about earlier. Is if you attack the coaches and the guards, you'll go up on the reputation track, but you won't have built the traps and barricades to score the points that reward you for going up on the track whereas if you build the traps and barricades you've only got to get one step up on the reputation track and it's as good as getting six steps up there it scores you the same number of points that's why i don't like the reputation thing it just seems pointless yeah anyway anyway um all right there's a couple more things the sheriff's stash so things go in the sheriff's stash when you get Mm -hmm. arrested and then when you free prisoners you get to take something out of the sheriff's stash and the sheriff's stash starts with one or two of everything anyway so there's always a selection of things in there so why Why is the mech- Why? Just you've got to give something up into the supply when you get arrested. You get to take any one thing from the supply when you free someone. Why does yeah, Sheriff's Stash exist? I think it's just something they, they realize that just going in and uh, having the risk of going and freeing somebody or doing doing that action, wasting an action to go and free people, it's just an extra reward. No, no, but why can't I take it from the reserve? Why is there a specific thing called the sheriff's stash which adds to the rules overheads? I like it thematically. And, yeah, I can't can't give you an answer why you don't just take it from the supply. This is the most arguey we've been in a long time, I quite like it. (laughs) You're definitely going to tell me off here. Rescuing prisoners from the prison? Uh, (sighs) They cost you points, don't they? They do cost you points if you don't, but the fact that it's a varying number of VPs and stash rewards when you go and do it and stuff, it was just, it was at the point where I'm explaining that, I'm so fed up with all these other fiddly things that it's another tiny mechanism that works differently to every other tiny mechanism in the game. 
and you're getting two, three or four, depending upon what level they are in the prison, and you get a certain number of rewards from the sheriff's stash. And, and it's just another thing I'm explaining that, and every time someone rescues someone from the prisoner, for the first couple of games from the prison, they say, how many points does that score me? Oh yeah, that's level two. That's three points for level two. Okay, right, right, yeah. It's not written on the board. It doesn't work the same as the points for anything else. And it's just another thing where you go in there, you're like, oh, how many points do I get? Oh, that that number. I get, I yeah, I get, I get the fiddliness, but yeah, you won that argument. I get the fiddliness, but I think that is a it's a nice aspect of the game. I think the releasing your prisoners, you don't you don't lose points. You actually gain points, and you actually gain if you if you do let them go to sort of the lower reaches, then you, you're going to gain a, a couple of items back. Yeah, maybe the sheriff's stash. Maybe it doesn't have to be from there. But you get gaining those items can be quite key because items are quite hard to come by. I think it might be that doing that with your hero in the hero phase earns you points, whereas the other things you do in the hero phase earns you reputation. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's always a conflict in people's heads. Mm-hmm. Okay. And my last whinge, I'm quite widey. Envoys, the idea is you're sacrificing a worker in order to get endgame scoring. Yeah. But you start with a pool of six workers and you're always going to automatically refill up to your three or your four if you manage to build loads of traps or barricades. So until you send your third envoy, which is the maximum you can send, it won't happen to the last round anyway, so you're not going to lose out on that worker. You're not losing out on workers for doing it. So it's a mechanism that's supposed to say you'll have fewer workers because you sent them to the Crusades, but you don't actually have fewer workers because you always refill to the maximum amount i think it's it's supposed to be towards the end that you feel it because when you're when you're but you can only feel it with your third one going yeah well as you say if you you do manage to release that fourth worker then obviously that that has an impact on it but only if you send a third envoy Mm -hmm. so how often are you going to send that third envoy before the final round so they will have any effect at all yeah, no, okay. Fair so, enough. again, it's just, all right, when I say it, and they all sound petty, and probably linked together, that wasn't the most enjoyable part of a podcast ever, where someone's going, this is, this is wrong, this is fiddly, this is wrong, that's fiddly, that's wrong. But I was trying to get across the idea that it, it, beat, it absolutely beat me down, learning and teaching this game, and getting the whole thing, uh, yeah, why this, it. why that, why this, I don't know, and why wasn't the rules <laughs> edited. And that's why the rule book, going back to the very first thing you said to me, that's why I found problems with the rule book, because the rules themselves have not been edited. So how can you possibly edit the rule book to make I, sense and flow? Yeah, I agree. I agree. When you, when you, you don't have to agree with me, by the way. I'm not, no, 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 sure. no, no. No, I don't have to agree with you. Uh, but when you did mention it, I kind of did go back. I had a look and I thought, you know what? Because the way that quite often myself and Natalie will learn a game is we'll sit down in our kitchen with the game out and watch a video. Yeah. And we'll be like, all oh, right, okay, that's where that is, okay, okay. And we, we, we'll literally have the pieces in our hands. Oh, right, yep, that works there. Then we'll go through the rule book, and then so everything will make sense already. So we don't always pick up those really irritating or lack of information in rule books. Going back and looking at it with, with sort of fresh eyes after having watched that video not played it for a, for a few weeks, it, yeah, I certainly saw where you came from. And I completely agree with you in that all of those little points, some of them big, some of them small, they all sort of come together to make it a very, very hard game to grasp. So I, I get it. I get it. I agree. 
Oh, okay. And also, obviously, I'm very intolerant of robots because I read so many of them doing the videos. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, if you want to watch a video to learn this, there is a pit stop. There is a pit stop. Blood, sweat, and tears went into making that. Very, very nearly forgot the villain phase, but... <laughs> Let's not worry about that. Let's just move on. Let's just chuckle in the middle of the video and pretend nothing went wrong. You okay. chuckled yourself. That was the bit that got me. I always chuckle. One, someone, one of my friends pulled me up about it. I know you've made a mistake in the video because you start laughing. <laughs> you were you you were well into talking about your the, your hero phase and like oh, but there is a. I could not bring myself to reshoot that. In fact, I was close to kicking the game down the garden after reshooting that. Trying to make it all be coherent in 12 minutes is... Anyway. Um, right. Yes. So, Ronan, let's... Right. Winges aside. Really? Oh, well, those winges aside. Let, let's talk about the game once you know it, once you understand it, once you've played it a few times, once you haven't got... a three different people going how does that work what does this do how many do i get there the semi co-op that's the game that i think you played i certainly played even though there is a full co-op game available and a, a solo looks, game looks a bit available. dull the full co-op yeah, game looks yeah. a bit so semi co-op was the bit that i was most worried about going into this cuz like yourself i'm always quite dubious about semi co-op games i think it worked for me because you need to do the things that you need to do. Like the things that stop the Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham and Guy Guy of Gisborne. It's things that stop them winning are the things that are going to score you points anyway, and they are a viable route to victory. Are they? <laughs> well, you just we you want to you want your main things of getting to victory is building barricades and traps, surely. Yes, but it's it's going to be quite a slow process to build those barricades and traps. Even if you cut focus, you're probably going to build maximum six in total over the five rounds. So in the first round or two, if you're playing with three or four players, one or two people concentrate on doing that, you're getting a trap, a barricade, maybe two coming out each round. Okay, but you're also using your hero to attack carriages. Yeah. But that doesn't. Oh, I guess if they're getting closer. But yeah, attacking the carriages that have moved along and progressed along a road with barricades helps. Mm -hmm. That scores you points if you've got barricades on there. But it also will get you money and allow you to put money back onto the roads, stop the that lose condition from happening, and obviously attacking the guards, uh, removing them from play, removing them from the hideout areas are going to stop the village area building up. So. It pretty much everything you do, I think, apart from those frivolous things that we've talked about, are geared towards stopping the, the game beating you. Okay, so attacking the guards only gains your reputation, which is going to score you a maximum of five or six points if you've gone down that route and attacked guards. So it's not, mm -hmm. not a lot of points. So there's not really an incentive to attack the guards. Well, uh, also if they've arrested your people. You stop your people from being arrested. You stop okay, your resources so the, from being lost. But how about too many sheriff cards in the first round or two clogs up all the action areas. You can't then use your cards on the active side of your player board, meaning you're restricted in the resources you can collect, meaning that then that guard track fills up very quickly and it's before you've had a chance to lay out traps. And if the villain deck has got a lot of sheriff activations in the top, there's no chance of winning the game. Yeah. I get that, but I, I, I 
was worried about uh, too many Prince John cards because Prince John comes out in the same area a couple of times. He just rinses that road of pennies. So that's that's the bit I was more worried about. That's the that's the bit that we tended to get the Prince John coming out and slapping us. I, all right. I mean, the Cherif one happened to us. The Prince John one didn't happen to us, but I can see it could happen. So either way, draws of cards that do that, and suddenly you're screwed. Because we got to the end of the second round, and there'd been a lot of Sheriff activations, and mm. suddenly you look on the board, and there's like two spots maybe you can go and do an active card. So every single action is a single, I take one wood, I take one stone, I do one thing, and then more Sheriffs come out. And you're like, well, these guards are just piling up. We can't control this. And what's my incentive to control it? I've, I, I am my one step up the reputation track. If I kill five more guards, it's going to score me three more points. Mm. I'm not bothering. I'm doing other stuff that's going to score me points. You lot do it. And it happened. And it's as soon as players knew the game, that's what happened. They went, what? why would I do it? Yeah, no, that's one of the things I was going to say to you about. Our players that are behind, and clearly behind, are they just going to tank the game deliberately? Yes. <laughs> yes. And the reward for killing those guards is not enough. So why wouldn't they? Uh, and even, I know you said go in and killing the carriages. If you manage to get a number of barricades out, then it will start scoring you some points. And once you've got two barricades on a road, it's worth going and attack a carriage on that road. But you'll only attack a carriage on that road where you've got barricades. Why are you going to attack them on a road where someone else has got barricades? So actually, once people start barricading a road, the other players are not going to come and attack that carriage because it's going to score you. If I kill that carriage and you score six points, I'm not doing it, Sean. It's too confrontational and it, and there's not enough reward for doing those things to me. And when we tried to play it twice with people who had already played it once, we lost quickly both times, mm. which obviously soured my opinion on the game and brought some of those other things that I had problems with more to the fore. I agree. I agree about the tank in the game, not 100%. I don't think it would happen with me and that. We play like that, but certainly down London and board, I think that would happen quite regularly. Well, it happened with me, Rachel and Ellie. It's because you're mean people. <laughs> you know, but we don't play mega, you know, attacking each other. But it, but it was a case of, and in fact, I so I had most money, so they were like, well, you, you better clear those guards off the guard track. So, and I was last player. And I said, if you guys don't, if the sheriff comes out in the wrong spots, we've lost the game. They're like, well, we're losing anyway. So flip, sheriff, game over. <laughs> so then, you know, to get it out. Like, How far were they behind, though, after two rounds? How far no, were they not, behind? No, not that much behind, but enough for them to go, well, why would we do it? And then you, as last player, won't have to do it, and you can do more things to score your points, and you'll get further ahead. Oh, it's very, it's very early to be tanking. I'd, I'd already beaten them twice. <laughs> so okay. was... All right, all right. So you bludgeoned them into it. So oh, because well, I won. Oh, actually, the first one was a bit of a beating, but anyway, because I won it, so they're like, right, that's it. Why, why would we? It's up to you to stop, prevent us from losing the game now. I'm like, one third player. I'm not... anyway. Yeah, strong opinions on this one. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. But but a, a completely rubbish game wouldn't have generated this much of opinion. It's the fact that there's there's a good game there. Yeah, yeah. I they just listen, haven't crafted it. I'm playing devil's advocate a lot here. I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. So one of the aspects that I did enjoy about the game, I, I mean, I did think that they did the semi co op quite well. 
but there were obvious, there were obvious problems, as in tanking the game, etc. But one of the things I did really enjoy was the thematic elements of the game. I liked the way that you sent out the merry men to do the gathering and, well, you know what, the hard work. And then, obviously, Robin and Little John and Will Scarlet and Marion and all the all the famous characters, they swoop in and do the heroic stuff. I, I liked the thematic element of that, and I liked the villain phase, that the villains felt really annoying and irritating, thematically. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's one of the, one of the frustrations in that. Yeah, that all makes sense. I think they did nice thematic touches. You're right. <laughs> and it looked <laughs> nice, and it had a nice theme, and it had some great ideas. Have you got anything else you want no, to bring? I think we've been. Oh, go on then. Go on. I think we know time. where you're going. Okay. So the first play was fun, and it's surprisingly fun. And I was like, oh, this is more fun than I thought because we were all working out together. We were trying to work out what the balance of what you were actually doing as opposed to scoring points and what value actions had because it was slightly obscure or arcane as to how this would all play out in the end. And then after we played once, we all worked out certain things are much more valuable in terms of winning than other things. Therefore, those are the things we're going to do next time. And the players who lost will be like, I'm not losing again like that. I'm going to do what you did last time to me. So you're now going to have to do the things to save the game. Oh, no, I'm not taking on responsibility to saving the game. And it had the classic semi-co-op problem. And it fell completely off a cliff. We felt like there wasn't enough to do on hero turns because we were trying to collect resources on our merry men turns to build traps and barricades because that's what actually scores you points. Therefore, we didn't have enough dice to be active in the hero turn, therefore the game started running out of control. Unlucky draws on the villain cards can just kill the game early. When the tracks full up, if you start falling behind on the guards, there's then nothing to do in your merry man phase that's very productive, which puts you further behind and the game starts spiralling out of control. This one badly, badly needed a rules editor. And in the end, it felt like I was playtesting the game. And I think, how many first game playtests did they do when people enjoyed it? And then how many follow-up playtests do they do to get to the depth of the game because it didn't feel like there was enough done? So for me, Robin Hood and the Merry Men started off, I was very hopeful because of the look of the game. We've talked about how beautiful it is. And I've talked before, even in this episode, about how much I like the Miko's work. I think the rules and the general game itself is quite hard to follow at first. Once we persevered, we, we found quite an, an easy game uh, at its heart. I like the arc of the game. I thought that it started off quite slow. Even the, the villains didn't start off quite as annoying, but they really ramped up. But it does have issues hidden within it. There are turns when you won't do a lot. Ronan's pointed out some of the, the fiddly little bits that are just just wrong or could be cut out of the game and I think when it boils down to it if you're playing with people who want to win which is most of us at maybe like the third round mark not the second round mark the third round mark or onwards if somebody's looking like they're definitely going to lose they're just going to work against you and they're going to they're going to tank the game and you don't have a lot that you can do about that with, with your two actions for your hero and your three actions for your merry men. And I think the game will die because of that. I do enjoy playing it because of the thematic element. And just I just love the, the swashbuckling nature of the game. 
But again, not something that I'll play a lot because of the flaws. A game high in promise, but ultimately flawed. And that was Robin Hood and the Merry Men. Lovely. That is an epic. That is the longest review maybe we've ever done of a game, Sean. Vented, I'm sure, by my whinging. You are a miserable sausage, aren't you? Thank you very much. Thank you, yes. We're going to crack on, and and maybe these two will be a bit quicker. I hope so. This one is Pandemic Fall of Rome, designed by Paolo Mori, working on Matt Leacock's basic pandemic idea. It's for one to five players, taking around 60 minutes. It comes from Z-Man and Asmodee, obviously Z-Man being part of that group. So it is Pandemic, and it's set in 5th century Imperial Rome, in which the five barbarian tribes are looking to invade, and they're trying to sack Rome. As per other pandemic games, each of the player takes on an individual role, and on their turn they're going to take four actions, then they're going to draw two player cards, then they're going to draw enemy cards, allowing cubes to come onto the board. Now the enemies in this case represent the five barbarian tribes, and they're going to advance along tracks via cities in order to get to Rome. As in other pandemics, if you ever get more than three cubes in a city, they're going to sack those cities, and you're going to move down the decline track, and that's one way in which you can lose the game if the decline track ever goes too far. Now, there are legions in the game, which the players can recruit and move around. And if a barbarian cube is ever to appear in a city where there are legions, those legions will fight it, get rid of the cube, and all the legions in there will die. Unless you have players or a fort you have built in that city, and then only one of the legions is going to die. If ever you have to add barbarian cubes to the board, as per standard, if the stock has run out, then you will also lose the game. It's the other way you can do it. What can the players do? They can move around the board. You can move along a road and just move to an adjacent city, or you can sail by discarding a card of the colour of the port you're trying to sail to, and most cities are ports. You can build these forts I mentioned by discarding the card of the city you're in, and if you're at a fort, you can recruit legions, but the number of legions you recruit is dependent upon how far you are down the track, the invasion track, in which more barbarian cards will be drawn at the end of each turn, but you can recruit fewer legions per action, showing the decline of Rome. A new thing you can do is if you are present with legions and barbarians in a city, you can fight with those legions, rolling one die for each legion with you up to a maximum of three. And on those dice, you're going to kill barbarians, hopefully wipe them off. You may well kill legions in the course of these battles. And also you might activate the special power of your own role. And each role obviously has its own way of moving around or doing actions in a slightly more efficient or easier way. The way in which the players are going to play is either they're going to ally those tribes by discarding a set number of cards of the colour of the tribe as long as they're in a city with the coloured tribe Uh, it's five down to three depending on how numerous the barbarians are or by wiping all the cubes of a colour out and any mixture of those two will win you the game in those player cards which you draw two off each turn there's going to be the standard cards of cities with different colours there's going to be events in there depending upon number of players and there can be revolt cards which is when you're going to move down draw more cards and have fewer legions coming out so the way we're going to lose, if that player deck runs out, if too many cities get sacked and we go down the decline track, or if Rome gets sacked, or if the stock of cubes runs out, and the way we win is by allying or wiping out those barbarian tribes. Sean. Another take on Pandemic with a different theme. In this case, it's a very specific end of the empire feel if we don't talk about the Byzantine Empire and the continuation of Rome because we're taking a Western European... Look at this, set in that particular time period, trying to capture the fact that Rome's a declining force and we're looking to either ally with our enemies rather than destroy them or die. Is this the best use of theme in a pandemic ever? 
it certainly is for me. Because I, I love my Roman history. I love... I think Rome is just such a fascinating entity in itself. And the Empire and how they did things and what they brought and what they took away. And, yeah, fascinating. And I do think that this game really did capture that feeling of the invading forces attacking from all over Rome, trying to stem all of these fires, which which did happen, and were, were, they were kind of drawn really thin. And that lends itself to the theme of pandemic really well. I concur with you. Lovely. Now, in order to capture that theme, what they've done is this is the most structured of the pandemic games I've played. To the point where when you're setting up, there's nine particular cities will get that initial blush of three, two, and one cubes. Those same nine will always be the start of the discard pile that's going to go back on top of the pile every time we have one of those revolt cards. Also, five Rome cards of one of each of the colours will be in the discard pile initially. So those cards which are going to come back again and reoccur throughout the game are set for every single game. And the whole game is much more structured and predictable than other pandemic games. It is and it isn't. And that's oh. because of the, the marching mechanism. In that when when they start marching they can they can branch off. And yeah, they're all heading towards Rome itself, but you never know quite where they well, you know where they're gonna go, but based on where they've gone previously rather than you know where the cards are coming out. So yeah, it is structured and you can plan ahead. But you've, then you've got that sort of dividing marching mechanism, which kind of has you on your toes. Yes, yes, yes. But it's predictable, that marching. So if they are supposed to go appear in a city which is further down the track towards Rome and there's no cubes there, you count back along the track and they'll appear at the next city which has a cube adjacent to it. You'll have to watch a video to get how that works, but they will appear in patterns. So they'll actually, as he says, march across the board to appear and try and get their way to Rome, which makes them predictable, Sean. Predictable within within a certain parameter. Yeah, okay. So you can't, you, you're not going to be able to predict sort of four or five turns in the, in the future where things are going to go, but what you can do is it's your next turn based on the previous turn. You can certainly see where things might end up if a certain card comes out. And again, just going back to the theme, that, that's very thematic because obviously armies will march in a certain direction, but will obviously change, change their mind, but they'll only have limitations in where they can go. Agreed. But I will throw to you that that means that often, as you play the game, the problems that you have, and the problem is, are going to be in similar areas from game to game to game. It's not going to be that outlier of, this time Sydney's my problem city, next time Chicago's my problem city, next time Moscow's my problem city. It's more often than not going to be in the hinterland of Europe, which is very thematic. That's, you know, a lot of, they came across the Rhine, all the rest of it, but doesn't lend itself to as much variety play to play. No, but what it does lend itself to, Ronan, is it lends itself to uh, a learning curve. I think the more you play this game, I've only played it three times myself. I think you've played it a little bit more than me. But certainly, even on that easy level, the first time I played, it felt really difficult, really super difficult. Uh, And not even thinking about those higher levels when we first started playing and there's certainly you do you do get better 
you do you, you start to learn where the hot spots are going to be you start to learn where you need to kind of congregate your forces and yeah i think you 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 progress and you learn as a player i agree with you i think one of the questions for players or people thinking about that they want to own it is whether that caps how many games of this will be rewarding and whether they wish to solve a similar puzzle again and again and again. One of the things I think that does make it feel tougher and make you have to think differently, which is what you want from a different variant of pandemic, is that movement is very tough. And more often you can dart around from port to port, but cards are very valuable. So you are a little bit more tied into what you can do. You can't build... Uh, your treatment stations and fly in between them from continent to continent as you know compare it back to the original you, there's nothing like that though you can go and go port to port what that means is that card draw actually then becomes much more important because it's much harder to link up with other players and share cards because if the card that you have that you need to share again is in a hinterland it's not in a port city it's very hard for you both to get there and it means that your ability to ally is very much dependent upon card draw. And the players as a group have to read what they've got. And it, look, it looks like we're going to be able to ally black. It looks like we're going to be able to ally with orange. Those, therefore, are the colours we have to wipe out. And you have to be much more aware of the group pool of cards. For sure, yeah. It, it does drive cooperative play a lot more. But the feeling that I got from this one, so in the normal sort of vanilla pandemic, you, you hop around and you use those, as you said, those treatment centres and things to for for just to, to zip to, from one area of the map to the other to increase your movement. And the way I felt about the forts in Pandemic Rome is I felt it was almost like a tower defence aspect going on because you kind of you, you build those forts and, and throw a couple of soldiers and legionaries in there just to, to defend that area should the march come through that way just to halt the march. So a bit of tower defence going on and obviously you can spawn your troops from those spaces as well. Yeah, it's similar to the quarantine specialist in, in other way uh, where you could put a marker down it prevent a cube from coming out and you could move away. But but more tower defence in there, I actually like that. I hadn't thought of that comparison. Um, I want to throw a couple of the new mechanisms at you. I'm going to go with the one that's less controversial because I'm pretty sure you love the second one. The first one is the events. <laughs> so the interesting thing with the events cards is that they've got a base function, but also there's an advanced version on the same card whereby if you decide as a team to move down the decline track, which can accelerate your doom, but the event becomes more powerful. And I really love the fact that it's given you that choice my reservation is that it means that if you're doing well, you can do better because you've got more space on that decline track to move down and therefore the events become more powerful and you're doing even better than if you, you know, it was running away from you. Yeah, I concur. Yeah, I think you pretty much said it exactly the way I would say it, yeah. This, gonna, this should be two hours of you doing that. <laughs> so it's, yeah, very much. I agree. Thanks. <laughs> this one, I'm pretty sure you're going to love it. The fighting with the dice. Dice! Yay! <laughs> it's one of the things that I really takes me away from Pandemic and it takes me away from the thematic side is I go there and take two cubes away. Oh, okay. I go I go there, I take a cube away. I go there, I take a cube away. 
It just it just feels like oh I've not really worked for that. When you throw a little bit of dice rolling in there, I'm having a battle. I'm fighting. I'm there's a chance of failure here, so I like it. I much prefer it. I agree. I love it, but I couldn't have phrased it worse. <laughs> <laughs> I love that in pandemic that it's a solvable. Not sort of, each round is a puzzle in itself. But you know, I don't like pandemic, and that's pandemic. one of the aspects I don't like about pandemic. It's just is crazy. The, the black and white nature of it. You go there, and you are going to take the cube away. I know exactly what I'm going to do. There's no, there's no wonder. There's no mystique. It's just there. How dare, dare a game reward good play? I'm just happy <laughs> uh, Any other thoughts you've got before you sum up for us? Oh, yeah, I just wanted to maybe talk about the art. I think the art is, is very strong, really nice, looks good. The cards are Geezer nice. on the front looks like Zeke Garcia. <laughs> well, apart from that, give it, give it a minus mark from that. But other than oh. that, <laughs> we we'll like see him in, mate. You're going to get a punch. I'm ready to sum up, man. Hit me. Okay, so I was I was on board from the very start with Pandemic, Fall of Rome, because of the subject matter. And it, I was very hopeful that it would be a pandemic that I would enjoy other than Pandemic Legacy. And I wasn't disappointed. It felt like I was fighting off the barbarian hordes. It felt like I was having to work really closely with my other generals or senate members what have you for in rome but fighting very much against the tide for that reason i think it is probably my my favorite pandemic after pandemic legacy season one not season two because i haven't played it but rubbish rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) so uh, yeah very much a pandemic that i may choose to own in the future and i can't give it more praise than that wow that's more than I thought. There you go. A thought's occurred to me before I sum up quick. Have you played Pandemic the Cure? I've played Pandemic the Cure. I didn't care for it. The one I haven't played is Iberia, which you th- you say is your favourite. Yeah, but that's even more like thinky and worky outy. And... It's because you enjoyed the dice rolling and the uncertainty. I wondered if you'd like the Cure, which is that's what it's all about. It's, I really like that one as well. But okay. For Pandemic Fall of Rome, they did a fantastic job of putting a specific theme to the system. They twisted the rules really nicely in making that so structured, though, and close to base Pandemic and making movement harder. The whole thing is more predictable and less dynamic. And each time I play, the puzzle feels too similar to the last time I've played and I'm not getting enough surprises and the dice roll, I'm afraid, doesn't do enough for me to replace that. So it hasn't got the replayability of other versions of the game. And having played so many versions of Pandemic and so often, every new iteration probably has to work a little bit harder for me to fall in love with it. I did fall in love with it, but I got a little bit bored with it after half a dozen plays or so. Very good. Not evergreen to me. A game to take a piece and pass it on. Oh, see, I thought you liked it a bit more than that. See, shows you what I know. Are you Are you claiming my copy now? I'm claiming it. I'm claiming it. Good. Okay, so moving on to our final game of the episode. This is The Flow of History, a 2016 release by Moai Diaz Games and a re-release by Tasty Minstrel Games, designed by Jesse Lee, playing three to five players, although Tasty Minstrel have included a two-player variant into the fold. 
The game is all about civilizations going through the ages from ancient times through to the modern era, and players are going to develop their nation by purchasing new cards, attacking others, and defending themselves. On the table, you've basically got a deck of cards and some resource tokens. And the deck of cards are going to start with age one and proceed through two, three, four, etc. You have a certain amount of cards face up in the market, and players are going to have their starting card or nation. And you're also going to start with some resource tokens. Now, resource tokens themselves, there is a supply and a reserve, and this is very important. The cards themselves come in construction, government, knowledge, military, leader, and wonder, and each type is in a particular colour. The cards have investor bonuses, special abilities, and production icons on them. And each type is going to stack in your tableau with only the production icons at the bottom visible from the ones underneath, with the exception of the leader, where you can only have one at a time, and the wonders, you can have multiples on show. Now, on a turn, you get one action. You can invest. And what you do when you invest is you're going to place your, your dobber, or your marker, onto one of the cards in the market, and you're going to add a certain number of resource tokens. Based on what you think the worth of the card is, or to fend off others, why are you doing this now? Because on your subsequent turn, for your one action, you can complete and you can take that invested in card and place it into your tableau and, and reap the rewards for it. However, other players in between have the opportunity to snipe. And what they're going to do when they snipe is they're just going to pay the amount to you that you have pay, placed down to reserve that card and then you're also going to get a bonus taken from the supply as well. But they get that card immediately. You also can activate a card if it has the activation icon on it. It's going to give you a bonus. Lastly, you can harvest. Which is the main way of moving the resource tokens from the reserve into the actual supply. So it's a, very, it's a closed market unless you use that harvest action. Going back to completing, if you do complete, you can take an investor bonus, as I mentioned before. This means that you are going to get resource tokens from the supply equal to the number of production icons that you have on your cards in your tableau that match the investor bonus icon. You do not get this if you snipe. Lastly, the card effects themselves are you have an instant effect. You can attack. Attack play is a major part of the game. You are going to look at your attack icons on all your cards, and you're going to see the defense icons and the attack icons on everybody else's card. Anybody that you are greater than, you can then attack, and whatever your attack card says you do to them, it will be a penalty to them. You can attack all, which attacks everyone of a lower value to you. You also have permanent ongoing conditions on your cards could be more production icons etc and you have a turn action use an action on a card that you choose to do end of game scoring happens once the future card turns up and you're going to get a point for every every one of your culture icons and you're going to get a half a point for all of your other icons and that roughly is a flow of history, Ronan. I'm going to start us off 
it's not the type of art Ronan that I normally go for. It's quite minimalist and Spartan, but for some reason, I really, really love the art style. I find it it's very stylish. The iconography is good, and it's very easy to see where where everything is and what everything is. I have not one word written down here about the looks of the game, mate. Um, <laughs> it's just that it's, it's just that it's like you obviously got the stark colours that immediately tell you what. The yeah, everything's is. clear. It's all very functional, which is exactly how I like it. I've got nothing bad to say about it, which means I guess I've got all good things to say about it. When you look at a card, it tells you what it does. A little bit of confusion between what's a production icon, what you get back when you take a card, and what it actually gives you going forward because they're the same and they're just in slightly different places. Other than that, I'd say it's it doesn't stand out and it's not bad. That's it. It stood out for me. I thought it was beautiful. And this is the really opposite beautiful. of what I would... If I was going to point out a game that I thought would stand out for you, this is not it. <laughs> I know, I know. I just really, really like... I like the style. I like the starkness of it because they've... It's not just stark to be boring and they don't want all the, the this art to take over and sort of make the information hard to come by. It, it's, it's also stark and it's an artistic choice as well. And it just looks really, really prominent when, it, when you're looking at it. I'm really struggling to remember a game that we discussed this year where I was making that exact argument and you weren't having it. Yeah, you know... You know, I, I, I don't know. I genuinely do not. Forty <laughs> years of knowing you, no, I don't know. That is, I'm just. I didn't expect us to be discussing the art style or for you to be praising it. But okay, all right. <laughs> Anything else? Go on, no, go on. You, what, what would you like to discuss? <laughs> is it my, my time? The mechanisms, basically, because they really intrigued me, and uh, and there was so much going on that it was more than I thought it would be to start with and highly interactive and I felt like every decision was important and one of the interesting things that it definitely takes a while to get your head around is the setting of the price because when you do that investor action and set the price of a card you're doing it for one of two reasons you're either doing it to lure someone in so that they'll pay you money (laughs) and that or I think that's worth four to him so I'm gonna make it price of four and you get the four and you go yes Nailed it. Brilliant. Or because you want the card and you're setting a defensive price. It'd be, right, but I don't want to pay too much, but I don't want to let you have it. So is it worth seven to me? And then is it worth five to you? So I set the price at six? Yeah, it's a very, very clever auction mechanism. Now, Natalie absolutely hates auction games, but she, she liked this one because she could... It's very, you know. I what don't you think want to auction do. is the right word. I, I, I price you're, setting. You're, okay, but you're price setting, but you're setting. Okay, yeah, fair enough. But even even price setting in in itself, she doesn't normally understand. She just always struggles to work out what the price should be. In this one, I think you know what it should be. It's just, do you have the resources, or do you want to spend the resources to guarantee that card, or to tempt people in? So yeah. She's, it was understandable. I'm fascinated that you think you know what it should be because I found it really situational as to what the other players had and what I thought they might be going for and as to whether I really needed money or I was flush because there are times when I went, that card suits me. It kind of suits the other players. It's probably only worth four to them, but I really want it. So I'm setting the price at eight. 
And it was it was uh, <laughs> as if playing a card game where you are dynamically setting the costs of the, you're designing the game as you go. This game, this card, this attack card is worth six money. Is it? Oh, I'd pay six for it. Oh, would you? Oh. The the beauty of that is that yeah, you know what? I might overpay, and obviously there's a risk element here. I might overpay, but I'm going to harvest next turn, so I want that supply to be bounteous. I want, I want bounteous, to, you say. <laughs> bounteous, bountiful, whatever. Uh, I want there to be lots of those resource tokens. Let's just call it money, and in the supply. So therefore, if I'm going to do that harvest action afterwards, why not fire it all in? Because I'm going to get a lump of it back anyway. As long as the supply has been bountified. Bountified. Yes. <laughs> the other thing that I'm really aware of is that if you want to purchase a card yourself, it's a, it's a double action. You invest, and then the next time around you can take it. That act of investing then makes the card available to everyone else. And I know that might sound obvious, but it's really something you have to consider because if it's a card that you think two of you really want, you don't want to be the one to invest in it because the other person can take it. You're waiting for them to invest in it because that you can take it. And it becomes a Mexican standoff, and not just in price, but in actions. <laughs> and you're like, oh, there's oh. a lot. There's a lot going on with those. Just those sort of two or three small mechanisms. They yes. they they engineer a lot of sort of little sub mechanisms going on. Indeed, indeed. So, a couple of the things to consider. So, military. Yes. Is so necessary. And I know they've done the thing where both your attack and your defense symbols count as your defense. So in theory, and in fact, in fact, it's easier to defend than it is to attack. But if you don't keep up, you are going to get absolutely decimated. You cannot skip out of the arms race, not until you get into the 20th century and era five and Gandhi comes out and stuff like that. Throughout most of the game... Well, we'll talk about Gandhi in a minute. <laughs> Throughout most of the game, as per most of human history... You have to be in the arms race or you will lose this game. See, yeah, I think at two players, it's possibly almost redundant because once somebody does get that Gandhi card, then... It's quite a late game, the Gandhi card, though. It's almost too important at sort of three and four players because and five players because, as you said, if you do get left behind, then you're just going to be picked on for the rest of the game. So you you have to be in that race. And I find it's almost too important and semi-redundant at two players when Scandi comes out. I do like the fact that it tends to create ebbs and flows in a different civilization, though, because if you get behind, there's no point trying to pick up one or two cruddy army cards now. Concentrate on your harvesting. Concentrate as much as you can while you're getting picked apart. Concentrate on building up your icons so that you can get a big windfall. And then when a better car comes out, you jump ahead by grabbing on that. And the sort of, right, okay, you've had the better for me for a century or two here. Now I'm going to come and, and one of you other ones is going to fall behind. As long as you understand. But that's really hard to understand in your first play or two. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that it's yeah, possible sure. to think your way out of it and go, right, I need to accept this beating. There's no point scrippy scrapping and just being constantly one or two icons behind here. I'll take the slaps. Then I'll attempt to jump ahead. But it's not always possible 
And there is the possibility of a runaway leader in this game and someone just getting more and a better tableau going. And once they've got a better tableau and they can make more money, they'll constantly be able to set the prices to what they want to be. They'll always be able to afford whatever you invest and they can start creeping and creeping and creeping away. To a degree, we, we kind of find when we were playing it that you might get that get ahead, but the, the resources would find their way round to everyone eventually, the resource tokens. But just moving on, we talked about Gandhi. Are there cards in this game that are a little bit overpowered and unbalance the flow of the game a little bit? So I'm looking at Gandhi, especially in the two-player game. Uh, it kind of nullifies your, you going on that army, that military track. And I'm looking at communism. And we nearly had a rock and roll moment the first time I played this game with the communism card. I had a, a Ronan end of game planned. I'd pretty... Tell us tell us what communism does, because I've actually written yeah, down okay. one note. Like, <laughs> I'll, no, I'll, tell, I'll tell my mindset going into, into before the communism came out first. So my big strategy was, I was we were all kind of neck and neck and the, the resource tokens were flowing around uh, quite freely between all three of us in, in a three-player game. And what I decided to do, I, I started to corner the resource tokens. And I had in mind, it was coming to the end of the game. You could see the, the deck was running out. And that's that signifies the end of the game because the future card is the last card. So I cornered pretty much all the wealth in the game. So I was going to have two rounds where I was just going to snipe everyone's stuff. And I was going to get all the cards pretty much. Nobody was going to get a card. And then communism comes out. What communism does in real life is it takes all the wealth and distributes it out evenly to everybody. Yay! Yeah. No, I, this, this section is for you to rant about. It. Carry on. <laughs> I was not happy. So obviously that was a first game problem. I now know that the communism card lies within, so I will adapt my strategy and have adapted my strategy since. But that that moment, it nearly got ripped up. It's one of those things in which the first game of this can be shocking because there are <laughs> moments like that throughout it. Communism would be the most stark in that I didn't know that could happen in this game. And it, you need to know and you need to plan. It's almost the most thematic the first playthrough because... You know, history happens to you, and you're like, "Oh, I didn't know that could happen." Well, it's happened. What do you do now? I kind of almost missed that first game, but it can be comedy. Um, Sean had mentioned communism to me before I played my first game, so I was kind of aware it was going to come up somewhere. And when it did come out, I'm trying to think what I did. What I did was I rinsed my money so that I didn't have the money anyway because I had the yeah, most money. Yeah, you spent it. all your money on the communism card, so even if someone tried to snipe you, That's right. they'd yeah, lose yeah, all yeah. their money. And yeah, yeah. So. so I got as much back as possible for yeah, it. Yeah, Correct. You're right. Well done. <laughs> That's why I had none left in my pot. So if someone grabbed it from when I put it in, yeah. Thanks for remembering my story for me. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, the, well, I'll tell you one thing, though, is that this is a card game with that, what I thought was stark art, but you love it. <laughs> but we are referring to things by their in-game name and the effects they have are thematic to the name they have. And it felt oddly thematic for this sort of a game. I, exactly what I had here. I said it plays quickly. This is the exact words. But it still has that feeling of a civilization building or at least... Uh, not maybe not building, but at least civilization monitoring or being part of a civilization that's been built. 
I concur entirely. Are we, are we ready to sum up? I uh, just want to quickly run through the two-player variant. Some parts of it, it does feel like it is just crowbarring in that two players onto the box cover. But I think what it does do, in if you do want to play the game two-player, it just gives you that extra card reservation going on. So it's very simple. When you finish your turn, you choose a card and it's prescriptive how much you put down of the supply money. So the supply empties out a little bit down on a card to reserve it for that dummy player. So it just means that the supply is ticking around and there's also another more options for the players to snipe. So it's not just one player sniping constantly of the other player. And on the flip side, two players just leaving each other completely alone and playing separate games. So it, it, it does work. It does crowbar in the two-player aspect of the game, but I think it does make that two-player game playable. Can't say as I was ever tempted to try two players with <laughs> Fair enough. Fair it's, enough. it's no Architects of the West Kingdom bot. Roden, would you like to sum up for us? Flow of History is a tough game. Be prepared to lose. <laughs> But learn to love the pricing balance, which is almost a mini game within itself. It is often compared to innovation. To me, it feels like it has much more control, much more. You you can decide what you're doing and what path you're going down. You don't have the random nonsense of innovation. I think it works best at three or four players. And if you do play three or four players and get used to it and give it the time from those initial shocks, you'll get a great, quick civilization card game. So, Flow of History, for me, I initially got it on a maths trade. I got a second copy when the Games Law did their Halloween trick-or-treat, where you pay a certain amount and they send you a random game, and I got another copy of Flow of History. So, that's why I decided to play it and add it to the review list for, for the show, because I was able to give a copy to Ronan, so he had a copy to play, so we didn't have to be together playing it or lo- loan it to each other. So I think it's fair to say my hopes were massively high. But what I got was very much a game that was more than the sum of its parts. Those simple mechanisms, as I said in thing, they engineer a load of sub-mechanisms that just make, make it really interesting. And everybody is interested in what you're doing because you're either blocking or you're setting prices or they're looking to snipe off you. Also, it does feel thematic. It does feel like that civilization is building. You understand what the cards do because they work just like they have done in our reality. And what you get in a very small box in quite a quick time frame is a very thinky, sometimes mean, sometimes nasty, but a very effective and enjoyable game. And that is a flow of history. Marvellous. So... If you join us in our outro, each of us is going to give our top three games and we will choose a game of the episode. Okay, wow, Ronan, that second half went on quite some time. Most of it was Robin Hood, to be fair. Do you know what? I think it's because it's been a selection of interesting games that... None of them have been perfect, and all of them have had some merit to them. So I think it's been worth discussing some of the reasons why we've thought the way we've thought. They absolutely did. I think it was quite an enjoyable 
playing session that we had because we get together we play some of these games before we do the reviews a few times over i hope we, we play t- some of them yeah <laughs> well no we, we played sorry we some of them we played together some of them we yeah. take away and play with our, our gaming groups or our, our spouses etc and i think all of them as you said had had that level of enjoyment to them and it wasn't a chore to play any of them you're right i'm intrigued haven't heard your opinions I don't know how this is going to go, to be honest with you. For me, any of the best five would have made a top three in certain other episodes of ours, where we've said the top three maybe aren't that strong. All five of these were worthy. Robin wasn't. Uh, Robin, even Robin was was a candidate for top three, really, for me. Uh, I I really enjoy playing it. It hasn't made it, a little spoiler. But it's good because I'd like probably thrown up on my mic or something. <laughs> the, <laughs> no, the only anyway. one, the only one I really sort of deliberated was uh, the number three position. Uh, three and four rotated a few times. I like to think of you rotating while you think about three and four. Maybe maybe <laughs> one in each hand. Nobody needs that. <laughs> Causing tides and all sorts. Right, go on, hit us with your number three. So the one that's made the cut for number three is Pandemic Fall of Rome. I just really enjoyed the planning, the, the as I said, that tower defence aspect of it. And that just, it, it changed Pandemic enough to make me enjoy it. And maybe it's just because I finally found a pandemic that isn't the legacy game that I actually enjoy that I'm getting a bit excited. But you're definitely one that I'm probably going to steal from Ronan. You can have it. Um, that is the equivalent a game equivalent of an Oscar it's like a Spiel des Jahres that is the Paolo Mori making a pandemic game that you want to keep that's that's big okay my number three was probably the the one who was furthest back in the running if you looked at these six games before we started playing them and it's Flow of History easily the smallest game in terms of size certainly not the smallest in terms of gameplay and repeated play and the fact that as you get to know it, certain cards are crucial and when they come out, they cause a reaction around the table. And I've really enjoyed the whole pricing and the growth and the control in it. And Throw of History for me was a fantastic game. Very good, very good. My number two is Architects of the West Kingdom. Already a big fan of Shem Phillips, and I think he managed to pull off that trick of adding just something slightly different and making it work. It's all very well people thinking up these ideas, but actually making it work is the trick, and I think he's done that in this game, and it's an enjoyable affair and a very quick flowing affair as well. Everyone likes something that's quick and flowing, <laughs> like like your main. Uh, my number two is Blackout Hong Kong. For first plays, this would probably be, would be number one, but it's just slightly the same. And after half a dozen plays, as I said earlier in the episode, I've played it all out. It's a really good puzzle. There's interaction, there's dynamism, there's maybe slightly too much random here and there for my personal taste, but it's a very strong game, again, from Alexander Fister and comes out number two in a strong batch. I think that's my worst, mate. I think that's my number six. No. Yeah. Get out. <laughs> that is, how is that worse than Robin Hood? Because I enjoy playing Robin Hood. I was bored Because there's bright colours. Literally, the only difference in these games to you is that there's bright colours. <laughs> I can't review with you anymore. I'm done. Where's my agent? <laughs> Damn. You've, 
You found me out. I tried. I actually mean it. This isn't a joke. Five five years and you finally found me out. No, no it's, it's six, just... by it, the way, but thanks again, for Again, I've always said, we've always said, I've always said that I don't care sometimes if a game has strong mechanisms and they all make sense and they're all tied together. If I don't enjoy playing it, then I don't want to play it and therefore it's not a good game to me. That's my that's my that's my Firefly argument. Firefly is mechanism wise is rubbish. It's terrible. It's, it's just terrible. an enjoyable game. It's a very it's a very bog standard pick up and deliver. There's nothing there's nothing new or innovative about Firefly. It goes very long, but I just have a blast playing it. And it has to be with the right people. But I just have a blast playing. I have a. Why, I have why are we reviewing Firefly in the middle of our top three? <laughs> because that's that's no. You brought it up. You you faced the music. So therefore, I brought I, up the importance of components to your reviews. And what I was asking you was how much of your dis, or whatever the word is, your, your dislike for Blackout is because of the look of the game and that you don't enjoy physically being with it. I think it was it was hard to physically see things as you mentioned in our review of it but I don't think that is the be all and end all I think there are certainly games that that don't look beautiful that I enjoy but Robin Hood I just enjoy the I don't think it's art and components necessarily I think it's the theme if the theme makes sense the thing if it grabs me then I might forgive a game for instance let's go let's bring another one out of the ether Dead of Winter a very, very Marmite game and a very... What's the it's word? It's not a Marmite game, it's just a bad game. Okay, but it's, it's one of... <laughs> fragile, fragile. I remember the fragile. review. All yeah, right. yeah, All that right. was I'll the word you used when we reviewed it. Yeah. A very yeah. fragile game. You can have good games of it, you can have bad games of it, but the theming makes me want to love it and therefore I hold on to those good games of it and maybe forget those bad games of it. I just... I, I can't put that much weight in the theme of a Euro game. I know you can't. That's it does why. affect me. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, I but get to, it. You know, for that level, because it's just the pure Euro. It's. I think we would have a very boring podcast if the two of us were just like exactly the same. So it's good that we come at things from different angles. You're not wrong. You're just not as right as I am. <laughs> What's your number one? <laughs> My number one game is a flow of history. Whoa! Very much like you, Ronan. I did not see it coming at all. It was something I was just willing to try. That's why I went for it on trade. I had no real thoughts that I was going to really love it, and I do. I just felt, and again, found it really thematic. Plays really quickly. It's very clever. Greater than the sum of its parts, and I thoroughly enjoy my games of it. I thought you were going to say Captains of the Gulf from what you said already. That was the one. That was the three. That was the three stroke four Captains of the Gulf. Fair enough. Well, there's only one way Flow of History gets beaten out to game of the episode then. And it does. Because my number one's Architects of the West Kingdom. I didn't see that coming before the show. <laughs> Obviously, after your review, I saw it, but not before the show at all. No, neither did I, to be honest with you. Neither did I after I read the rules. Neither did I after... And I mean, you backed it on Kickstarter, and I didn't. It was at Essen something made me say, well, this is a, a new take. People are talking about the capturing, so I'll give this a go. And you've got Essen Fever, you're buying more games than you should anyway. And 
I'm so glad that Sean put it as a review game because it could have sat on my shelf for two years and not got played, to be honest with you. There was nothing pushing me to put it top of the list until Sean decided to review it. And when I got it out, the pace, and I said it a hundred times during that review, the fact it's so fast generates everything within the game. Every decision matters. Every time you get arrested, it matters. The two-player bot, I mean, it's something that I would never even consider talking about in most games. It was so good that that means it's now another viable option when there's just two of us playing. So many good things about it. Nice components. It all works incredibly well. And for its length of under an hour, it's a really, really good game. If it was longer than that, it would struggle to fill the space. But it's condensed nicely into a tight, enjoyable package. Well, there you go. So our game of the episode is Architects of the West Kingdom, narrowly beating out... A float of history. I wouldn't have picked that out in a million years, Ronan. No, not I. I would have thought Blackout Hong Kong, Captains of the Gulf, and Pandemic for Their Own would have been the top three, honestly. <laughs> but all good games. But no, not just they just got beaten up by two games that do a lot of things in a shorter space of time. Very good. So what have we got coming up, Ronan? We are very close to recording our next Pit Spit episode. I like that that name's sticking around. Oh, God. <laughs> Only because you won't agree to nominate any, any of the... People are calling it Pit Spit already. They're referring to it as your Pit Spit, your Pit Spit. Man, it's starting to... It's getting there. It's a hit, the Pit Spit. It's no pitter patter. Oh, God. Let's move on. <laughs> right, that's, uh, that's going to be our next episode. Following that, we're going to go to Aircon. So we are looking for people to play games with at Aircon. I'm probably going to fire out some tweets of games I'll have with me. The likes of The Expanse, Space Corp, Horizons, Australia. We're looking for games of all of those. Coimbra. What else are we uh, we looking to play? Uh, I think we're bringing Crown of Amara. I shall be bringing along with me. And I'll have a rake of games because I'm putting loads into the old bring and buy. <laughs> Presumably you don't want to play those. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know me, come on, you know me better than that. I'll probably end up buying my own games. Probably, probably. I'll talk you into it after a few beers. So we're going to be around <laughs> at Aircon looking to play games, looking to relax and chill and spend time with friends old and new. So we look forward to seeing some of you there. Then following that, we may have a roundup episode of Aircon. We're not sure. It depends what we get played. So we'll see how that goes. But we have got coming, Sean, something uh, that we're trying out. A little bit of something new. A top 10. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing a top 10 of 2009, Ronan. We are indeed. 10 years ago, both of us had got into gaming. It feels like the right time to do it. A kind of retrospective back, looking back on what had been real evergreens. And if they make our top 10s from 10 years ago, you know that they are really top, top level games. Uh, we're going to be getting on a guest, I think, for that. But we'll talk about that nearer the time. And then we'll be back to reviewing more games and the usual format. So thank you for joining us in this episode. And we look forward to you joining us later on. Yes, and thank you very much, Ronan. Thank you, Sean. You are welcome. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. To download the episodes, you can go to Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes or Spotify. And of course, we do have our YouTube channel where you can go for our pit stop videos, which are overviews on games. And there's a, a whole rake of them there for you to browse through. We also have convention coverage on our YouTube channel. We are on social media. We have our Facebook page. We have our Instagram page. And we are very active on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. To contact us, you can email us on thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com or 
Probably our favourite way to interact with people is our board game geek guild. Pop along there and ask us or shout at us or tell Ronan he's wrong. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Boy, 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 boy.